Hashtag Pistons Podcast. We are back. I've got a new computer that we're recording with, which is excellent. It's going to work a lot better. Uh, sorry about being absent for so long. That's just kind of how it be when the computer dies. Uh, so this is going to be primarily a draft preview. We'll talk about some other stuff. And for the draft preview, um, we have our very special guest with us today, Helbridius. Um, You may know him from Twitter. You may know him from Reddit. Uh, either way. Uh, that's how Britius, he's our draft expert because neither me or Koo really know a whole lot about the draft. So we wanted to bring in somebody who knew a lot about it. Um, you can find Hal Britius on Twitter at Hal Britius. That's spelled H-A-L-B-R-I-D-I-O-U-S. If you didn't get that, just look him up. You can find him. He's pretty awesome. He's got the giant Stanley Johnson Island picture for his Twitter avatar. And also joining me as usual is Koo Cahill. You can find him on Twitter at Koo Cahill NBA. He is the site expert, editor-in-chief of PistonPower.com, and also kind of a goon. So, yeah. Um, so we're <laughs> going to start off with... <laughs> yeah, you shut up, Koo. Um, <laughs> we're going to start off with, just because of the fact that it's been so long since we've recorded a podcast. Um, oh, wait, before, just because, Hal, I don't think you've been on this in a long time. So, Hal, just say something so people know what your, your voice is. Aloha. All right, so that's how you guys know which one is Koo, I suppose, just the stupid sound. I'm the loud one. <laughs> um, if you hear one, your first thought is just, yuck. That's Koo Kill. <laughs> oh, also, also, we've got one more thing to add on to Koo Kill. Recently engaged. Come Kukil. on, bro, come on. Next thing you know, he's going to be Thank he's going to be packing on the dad bod. He was already well on his way, but he's got to finish it <laughs> off now. It's a beautiful so thing. Young love, you know? Um, <laughs> okay, so because it's been a long time since we've recorded a podcast, we're going to start this off with just some general end-of-season things for the Pistons. And um, Koo and Hal, because of the fact that they are both here, um, we're going to let them kick it off with some Stanley Johnson stuff because these are the two um, two of the last remaining people fully on Stanley Johnson. And uh, I know they've both got some things they want to say about that trade, about Stanley, about Thon. Um, so cool. I'm going to let you kick us off. I'm going to let you guys basically have this conversation to kick us off here. So go, go ahead with whatever you want to say about the situation. So you want me to just go straight into Stanley? Yeah, just go straight into it, man. All right. Well, I just want everybody here. know I don't want to get no tweets, no, no messages, no nothing about who Stanley's gone. Stop talking about him. It's been months. I wasn't going to bring him up everybody, but how happened to bring him up about something before we started the recording. And okay. Joe, hey, and then hold Joe, on. Joe hold, came with the hold, hold up. Well, let's go do it, everybody. Let's do hey, it. No, you be silent a moment. <laughs> While we were waiting to start recording, Koo says, "All right, Hal. Well, we've got you. Before you start, I gotta ask you this. You are the one who brought this up, Koo. So you can be silent about that." And then you guys start talking about. It. I'm like, "Well, this sounds like something we should have in the podcast." So go Joe, ahead, but don't you try and shift this blame onto anyone else. This blame is solely upon you. You are the reason this is here. You don't say, all right, Hal, before we start, we got to talk about this. We aren't start with this. This is because of you. So send him all the angry tweets you want. The man can't let it go. All right, can, can, can continue, sir. Anyways, uh, anyways, basically, me and Hal were speaking about, uh, Hal made a statement that the Pistons would be, what was it, four games better if Stanley was here instead of Thon. So I think we've already talked about this before. Joe has made fun of me on this. I believe we had one pod before uh, Joe decided to say MIA to everybody. But uh, that's, that's neither here or there. But 
we had one pod where Joe mentioned how I wrote an article about how oh Thon and Thon, the Thon and Andre pairing is working on defense. They're just linked, and their defense is causing havoc. Blah blah. And then me and Joe went to a game, and Thon continued to go out there and <laughs> completely look like make me look like crap. I had to sit there and just I I couldn't say nothing about it. And then the playoffs came, and he probably played worse than I could have played out there. So, okay, here, hold up. I want to say something about that game we went to because it was – so that was – what game did we go to? That was the Charlotte game, right? Yes. Um, oh, you so guys made the cardinal play. mistake of going to a Charlotte game. Yeah. Oh, so no. That, that was a mistake. But so we're at this game, right? And first off, Koo was pissy the entire time. He was just cranky <laughs> as shit. Even though I literally paid for his ticket, he was Joe just made me walk in the parking. Everything. Park. Joe made me. It was walk like a ten minute park. walk, and he's like, "Oh, this is so hard. I'm so fat. I can't walk." You I had know. I had pajamas and flip flops on. <laughs> that is true. He did, he did have his pajamas and slides on. But There's so, a whole other level of critique going on here. <laughs> we're we're at this game, okay? And he literally just wrote this piece about how the Thon Andre pairing has been really good on defense. Like he's really started to warm up to Thon. And we're watching the game, and Thon had like a five minute stretch where he made a couple of really nice plays. He had a big block. Um, he had an offensive rebound that he put back in for a dunk or whatever. And Ku is getting so hype. He's like, Joe, I told you, I just wrote this piece. And then in consecutive plays, Thon had that one. Th- like a wide open three that he just airballed. And then he had that play where he put it on the floor and he's driving to the basket. He jumps in the air and he tries to pass to somebody. And there's literally no one on that side of the floor and just throws it out of bounds. And Koo just looks at me. He just puts his head in his hands. He says, Oh no. Oh no. So that was like extra funny. Cause he was just, he was like at peak. I'm all behind this dude. And then he just had like three straight possessions where he just ruined it completely. So, sorry. I just wanted to add that anecdote. Please continue. Chris. Yeah, it wasn't. And we lost that game. And it was it was just an all bad experience. But anyway. It was so bad. Even the homeless person outside wouldn't take the pizza. See, and here we go. See, this, this is what I'm talking about. Joe just gets right. Oh, no, that, that was the, the playoff game. Oh, yeah. That, that was game three. the playoff game. Okay, right. See, Joe, Joe just can't let things go about that man. But he bought a pizza and he didn't eat it all. This like ten dollar Little Caesars pizza from the arena, and then he's like, "I'll give it to one of the homeless people." We're walking out, and he tries to give it to a homeless person, and they didn't take it. Hey, he missed out. This what it is. <laughs> that homeless Keep guy going. didn't pay for anything, and he had like ten cans of beer and all sorts of stuff just sitting there for him. Okay. People were very generous after that game. Go go ahead, Koo. We you know we can't get too sidetracked. Uh, well, anyways, basically, um, I kind of I kind of want to hear what Hal has to say, but I'll just end it with concerning what Hal told me before the podcast about uh, how, uh, Stanley would have been better for us. We would have won more. I'm not sure. Uh, the Stanley the Stanley ship was getting uh, it was getting hard to see us out there. It was getting pretty distant and. I think a change of scenery need, was needed for him, but Thon was Thon was pretty bad. So I don't think the Pistons made a very good trade looking back. And also, I made a video at the trade deadline talking about how how great the Pistons did it at the trade deadline. They they found a way to continue to be in the playoff picture during the season and also try to make some space heading into the future this off season. I, I want to retract everything I said, and if we we can get to that too in, in another podcast or later on this one at the end, but. I won't retract everything I said because I'm looking back at these trades. I don't really like any of them. 
how you can go ahead now about Stanley. I just think that your main critique about Stanley was that he wasn't a good scorer, and those were fair critiques, but Stanley Johnson ended the season with a 50% true shooting percentage, and uh, Thon Maker ended the season uh, where are you, Thon? Uh, 51% true shooting percentage. So, Stanley was vastly superior as a defensive player. Thon was horrific, despite his length. The, the amount of times Thon would, like, close out to a corner shooter, and the guy would, like, pump fake and drive by, and Thon would take three steps in the wrong direction. Just critically painful. And, you know, Stanley was the kind of guy who gave you energy on the break, and he defended really well. And maybe he's not making shots, but neither was Thon. And if you told me that I could get that extra boost to energy in a couple of those bench runs to the end of the season, that wins you games. That that was something that was vital. That was getting roasted by players left, right, and center. Stanley's the guy that was supposed to solve that. He wasn't there anymore. We suffered from it. And Thon provided what? He had maybe like three good games out of like 29, 29 in Detroit. So that's not great. Also, I just want to add on to this. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, but when we made this trade, Joe was talking about giving his analysis on Thon, and he was saying, well, you know, uh, the best-case scenario for him is that he just spots up in the corner, and Dwayne Casey makes sure he stays in the corner and doesn't try to do too much because he, if, if there's anything he can do, he'll be able to at least hit a, uh, hit a corner three every now and then. All right, I just want to let you guys know that in the games that he played with the Pistons, Actually, hold on. Let me give you what he shot before his time with the Pistons. 2016-17, he shot 36% from the corner. 2017-18, 34% from the corner. And then when he got to the Pistons, he shot 27% from the corner. So it just—it was just not good at all. It was just bad. It was horrific. I—I—I I, I, I feel bad that I wrote that article about Don and Andre. I don't want to say I take it back, but that—it wasn't good. It was bad. Well, well, just for what it's worth, the basis of the article you wrote, there is something there. Because when Andre and Thon are on the floor, um, there is a certain... there's definite, That's definitely the outline for an effective pairing together. Because Andre can sort of do all of the big man things that Thon is so bad at. It's like Thon is such a horrible rebounder because he, you know... If they turn the air conditioning up too high in the gym, he might blow away. But Andre's <laughs> obviously such a great rebounder that you can get away with having Thon there on the glass, right? And because Andre's such an all-around destructive force, it allows Thon to be a little bit more wild and to just sort of come in for those out-of-nowhere, you know, help-side blocks that he's actually pretty good at. So there is still something there. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's like you just brought it up, right? And... If you remember, because we recorded that podcast um, when I was in Florida about the trade deadline, and I was not a fan of Thon Maker. I didn't necessarily hate the trade totally, but I was not a fan of Thon Maker then. And, you know, there's a reason I said the best case scenario for Thon is that they keep him in the corner and he shoots okay. And they better hope that his corner three-point shot trends back up to where it was because if he's going to shoot 27 percent from the court and what do you shoot overall as a piston like 30 30 percent yeah 30.7 percent that he's not gonna you're barely gonna be able to play him um and that was also a big thing because it's like and once again in your defense um when you wrote that article for his first like 
don't know exactly how long, but for his first bit in Detroit, he shot like 34, 35% from three or whatever. He was hitting just enough threes that it was like, okay, we can live with this, right? And that sort of makes him at least a tenable low minutes backup, right? Because, well, he'll hit a couple of threes occasionally, and he'll occasionally block some shots on defense. So, you know, you can live with him as a low minutes backup. But if he's going to shoot 30% from three and miss that many corner threes, he's just, he brings you nothing else on offense. He's not a good rebounder. He's not a particularly effective screen setter. His hands are so bad that he's not all that good of a roll man. Uh, And then on defense, he blocks some shots. But other than that, he doesn't do a whole lot. He doesn't move that well. He obviously can't handle anybody physical at all. He doesn't make you a better rebounding team. So if he's not able to at least hit like, you know, what, like 33, 34% from three, he really, you can't play him. So they need to really hope that they get him back up. Also, also real quick, uh, you guys can go look this up too. I wrote another article during the season after we traded Stanley. I it was the topic was it was right after the Phoenix Suns game. Devin Booker was just torching us. The other wings were just torching us. I wrote Devin Booker as a reminder of what is going to come in the playoffs. And I I was I'm pretty sure I was on this podcast every time with Joe telling them, now that we got rid of Stanley, we're just going to get torn apart in the wing. It's just going to be it's going to be nothing we can do about it. Stanley and I I. Like Hal said earlier, I I never understood. This is what this is one of my biggest grips with it. Thon is not that is is not so much of a better offensive player than Stanley. Heck, I'd argue that Stanley actually probably brings more to that side of the floor than Thon could possibly give. But if you want to say Thon's better than Stanley on the offensive side of the floor, it's nowhere near enough to say that he outweighs his effect uh, his value on the court because Stanley was literally our only guy to defend anybody, and we saw what happened in the Milwaukee Bucks series because we tried putting Thon on him on Giannis the first two games and it was just utter just it looked like he failed whatever game plan it was Joe came in here and said that the game plan the game plan could be just Thon go out there you like to follow a lot go out there and just use up all your six fouls you do what you can be physical and just use them up it is it it didn't even look like he was doing that correctly he was he wasn't even it, it was, pretty, it was <laughs> he took it literally that's for sure yeah he took it literally and it was just, it was it was awful so the problem is that he fouled him, but he's such a freaking pin needle that even when he fouled him, it was just and ones. So he didn't yeah. even use his fouls effectively. Yeah, and so I mean, and I don't. I'm not trying to call anybody out on Pistons Twitter. We all love each other. We all are part of the same family. But there was a certain person that tweeted. I remember specifically after. I believe it was after the the. You guys remember when Thon Maker hit that corner three for the game? Uh, what was yeah. it against the Trailblazers? Yeah, I, remember that. I don't know who it yeah. was against. But uh, after the game, one of one of our fellow members in Pistons Twitter tweeted out, that's something that Stanley won't be able to do. If Don can just simply hit a corner three, which Stanley wasn't able to do, he'll be better than Stanley. I just want to let you know that Stanley Johnson shot 36% from the corner after he left to the Pistons. He also shot 37 his first year, 35 his second year. So all of those years, it's better than 27%. So Don didn't even shoot good from the corner when he came here. So it wasn't like he... He wasn't even doing what they wanted him to do when he got here. Everyone thought he could do. He didn't even do that. So it's just, like I said, at the trade deadline, I thought the Pistons did a, a really good job with the trades. Looking back at it now, a couple months ago, a couple months uh, after, I really disagree with just about every trade they made. Okay, here. So I'm gonna play a little devil's advocate. I know Ku, I Ku, I hate. I know you hate this. I go well. Here's the logic. You, yes, you see, play yeah. this. 
but we're going to do this, right? And once again, okay, and Koo, you remember this. When they made this trade, I was not a big fan of this trade because I've never thought highly of Thon Maker, right? Like, I said that straight up. There are a lot of people, when I wrote a piece, my piece introducing him, there are a lot of people who were, like, legitimately upset with me for not being high on him. I really do not think... I think Thon Maker's ceiling is literally, like, Joel Anthony who can hit a corner three. That is literally what I think his ceiling is. That's like generous. The best version he could possibly be is he occasionally blocks some shots and he occasionally hits a corner three. That's literally his best version. That is if he becomes as good as he can possibly be. So just to play devil's advocate though. First off, the one thing that you have to remember in this is that that trade was made with an eye on this coming season as well. Because now we'll see exactly what Stanley Johnson gets paid, but it's probably going to be more than what Thon Maker is going to make. So that's one thing. So you've got a guy under contract for next season. I don't know if I agree with that, Joe. Well, we'll see exactly what Stanley makes, but that was part of the reason. Another thing to remember is that Stanley Johnson wanted to leave, okay? I think at this point it's been written by a few of the beat writers and such now too, so there's no point in being vague about it. Stanley Johnson didn't want to be in Detroit anymore. He wanted a new team, straight up. That is a thing that we know. People have said enough. We don't have to be vague about it. Um, we know Stanley wanted out. Okay, that's another thing. And then lastly, remember that Fun does give at least something on defense. Like per 36, he blocked like 2.6 shots per game. He blocked 1.1 per game just straight up, even though he've only played like 19 minutes. That's not nothing. And also, for as inefficient as score as Thon Maker was, so Thon Maker's true shooting percentage was uh, 51.4, as a Pistons, Stanley Johnson's was 48%. So that's still a meaningful difference. And then lastly, the thing is that even though Thon Maker doesn't necessarily bring more to the table on offense than Stanley, he also doesn't, doesn't even attempt to do what Stanley does. So that means he's a better guy at allowing others to do their thing, right? Once again, this is something that we've talked about before. There's a degree to which Stanley not only sort of you want him to, but also Stanley wants to have the ball in his hands. This is one of the reasons that he kind of wanted out, is that the Pistons were like, you're not good enough to have the ball in your hands. And Stanley wants the ball in his hands. He wants to run pick and roll. He wants to slow down the offense and survey stuff. Fon doesn't do any of that. And so there's a degree to which... Thon brings value almost in the same way that Bruce Brown did with the starters, where simply by not being a ball stopper, by like just running around, playing with energy, not ever trying to do any of that stuff, he does improve things. Now, all that said, now I'm not as big a fan of Stanley as you guys are. I still like Stanley Johnson. I still think he's probably going to be at least a decent player. I do not think much of Thon Maker. I didn't, I wasn't big on that trade when they made it. I'm not big on it now. Uh, but I just just to play devil's advocate, he did block shots, which is one of the main things he was here to do. And there is a degree to which he still wasn't as bad in offense as Stanley Johnson, which is more of a more says something about how bad Stanley Johnson was. But it was at least a slight uptick. So if you I, I got to disagree yeah. with you there yeah. pretty bad. Okay. Go for it. Well, A, I don't think Thon was good on defense at all. You can block shots, but that's, you know, you're changing two possessions. How many possessions were you on the floor? Because Thon was an abysmal perimeter defender at the four, and he wasn't doing, you know, he had bright flashes. Okay, here, the rim, here we go. Here we go, okay? That, here, that here. wasn't good. So, 
Thon averaged, right, just per game, okay, he averaged 1.1 blocks. He also averaged 0.4 steals per game, which, by the way, per 36 minutes, that's more steals than Stanley Johnson averaged. Just for Come on, Joe, don't so, do that. Don't do that, Joe. So one block per game, okay? The margins are tight, boys. The difference, like, the previous season, right? You remember when the Pistons started off the season well and then they nosedived after Reggie Jackson got hurt, okay? And it was largely because their offense, because their defense stayed fairly consistent. I'm not going to bother to bring it up because I didn't plan on it and take a minute, but I'm pretty sure I remember that their offense got like not even two points per hundred possessions worse. Like one block in 20 minutes of game time, that is meaningful. I'm not saying it makes up for all the other issues, but you can't just shrug that off, especially when the alternative is Stanley Johnson, who averaged what, like point three blocks per game. Okay. Yeah. No, hold, on, hold on. Deflections and actually defending shots. Yeah, and yeah, actually I stopping. I'm just that's, saying you that's can't so just, much more valuable. You can't, you can't just, just use blocks as a value it. for defense. I'm just don't saying you can't me. just, you can't just poo poo it and be like, I don't care that he blocks. Joe, shots. I'll tell you, it is worth something. Joe, I'll tell you this. I'll just give you, I'll tell you literally just go watch the fourth quarter of the Dallas Mavericks game in January. And then come back to me about blocks and steals. Cool. We've talked about this. Okay. I know, I know Thon Maker's deficiencies on defense. I just want to say, don't just shrug off the fact that he blocked shots. I'm not, I'm not shrugging it off. I'm not shrugging it off. But you using you you saying well, he averaged more steals than Stanley. Stanley was a way better. Stanley's a way better defender, Joe. He's not trolling. Yes, Stanley John. I'm not saying that he's not a that Stanley Johnson is not a way better defender. He absolutely is. All I'm trying to say is that don't just poo poo the fact that he blocked. A lot of shots because he is a good shot blocker and that does matter that does make a difference so my question is is he a good shot blocker or is he crazy long and happens to be around the rim and therefore happens to have a hand on the ball at some point because there's I, think a difference. Good, I think he's a good shot blocker because he has a he's got a decent knack for timing up his jumps and such that's actually the spot where um his defense is really the place where I thought of his ceiling being like Joel Anthony because Joel Anthony was not that big. He was not a particularly stout defender. He didn't move that well, but Joel Anthony just had a knack for meeting the ball at the top and he could jump high enough that he could do it. Right. That's the one thing that you look at that I looked at with Thon before they traded him for him. And now that they have him, that's the one thing that you look at and like, that is a plus NBA skill, his ability to block shots. He's a legit shot blocker. The problem, of course, is that, as you mentioned, Hal, he does basically nothing else useful on defense. Like, he's long enough that he's kind of a, you know, he can get in passing lanes a little bit, but he doesn't move I mean, his feet very well. He actively gives up a lot of buckets. Yeah, yeah, he actively gives up buckets. He can't bl- defend anybody who's physical. Um, I'll also but- say this. I'll also say this, and I partly agree with Joe. That he, I think he's a, a good shot blocker. He has good instincts, but I'll say this as well. I think that his his best gift, which is what Joe's saying, shot blocking, is also his biggest enemy because there's many times because I, I I don't know what game it was that I'm speak uh, I'm thinking of specifically, but he did this a lot. He'd be guarding someone a uh, stretch four out the perimeter. As soon as you see someone drive, you just see him go oh, balls out, just dr- running as fast as possible to the rim, and he doesn't even need to to try and block the shot, and then his guy ends up getting an open either a cutting layup or open three because he's just trying to run at the rim like out of position, not much IQ on that, and he's just trying to swat everything. So while he's also while he's good at it, he doesn't have much IQ with how to use it. Yeah, okay. So that's sort of the last thing that because of the fact that they made this trade more so looking to the future, right? So 
that's the last sort of devil's advocate thing you could say is that one thing that about Stanley Johnson is that when his fire was burning hot, he was a phenomenal defender. You can't argue that he didn't always bring it all the way. Thonmaker plays his tail off every single night. It's often very misguided, but if there's one thing that even me, the greatest disliker of Dwayne Casey, right? There's one thing that guy is supposed to thrive on. It is getting guys to buy in and play disciplined defense with some consistency, right? So the hope is if a maker can get his head on straight on the defensive end, channel his athleticism and shot blocking into more constructive ways, there's a decent chance that he can, he can knock off a lot of those plays where he just straight up gives up buckets because he flies past people somewhere or another or gets totally out of position. And then he's just a really good shot blocker who is just kind of there the rest of the time, right? And at that point, if you do that, and then you give him at least shooting like 33% from deep, then you've got a workable backup player. As of now, he's like not really playable. There's a reason he dropped out of the rotation in Milwaukee. But yeah, so I don't know. Well, so A, I think that's a really lofty expectation but let's say I believe you the other thing I wanted to mention is I don't necessarily disagree with you on the offensive thing and here's why A uh, he didn't get uh, assigned a lot of turnovers Thon didn't because it was always they're always recorded as the passer's fault Thon was responsible for a lot of turnovers because he can't catch the ball oh for sure Thon was responsible for a lot of turnovers because he couldn't shoot any better than Stanley can and people didn't want to pass him the ball and instead they took terrible shots. Yeah. You know, you, you look at, you, you want to say Thon was this, you know, a better offensive player because he wasn't trying to do things. The fact that he didn't try to do things didn't help the offense. The offense didn't look any better when Thon was in the corner. You know, Stanley was taking shots and I don't like that Stanley was taking those shots. I'm a big Stanley defender, but I want Stanley used a totally different way than he was ever used in Detroit. Thank you. But but that doesn't make Thon a better offensive option. It just makes Stanley misused and I that that's not an argument for Thon being more useful to me because there was a okay. whole lot of problems with Thon offensively. Okay, so I was playing devil's advocate just now, right? Let me stop playing devil's advocate now. <laughs> I'm not gonna defend Thon Maker's offensive game at all. Right? I said it when we traded for him. I say it now. Beyond potentially being a semi-competent three-point shooter, he brings no plus offensive abilities to the floor. Literally none. He's not a good role man. He's not big enough to set good screens. He loses the ball all the time when you pass it to him. He can't dribble. He can't really shoot. He can't finish. The dude does nothing good on offense. Right? He's not he's, even a good passer. Yeah, he's not good at anything on offense. So just stopping to play. I, so, yeah, no more Devil's Advocate. I just wanted to say just so that that was out there because I know that you guys are both the biggest Stanley fans and such. So I just wanted to put it out there. But realistically, no, I'm not going to say anything good about that dude's offensive game because there isn't anything good to say. The only thing before is that he can hit some corner threes, and as Koo pointed out earlier, he didn't even do that for the Pistons. The dude is a total – he's bordering on Eric Moreland levels of uselessness. Okay, come on. Hey, whoa. Okay. Hey, whoa. We stand that guy. Yeah. I Well, at least Eric Moreland set good screens and wasn't a totally useless pass. Exactly. Eric Moreland okay. passed to a fault 
I can appreciate yeah, that. Yo, can um, I say? Can I say my conclusion? My last I thing? do even not play. Yeah, I'll finish this up. I right. to say yours. Okay, I do say even not playing devil's advocate. There is a universe where he is a useful defensive player, though. There is definitely a universe because, and here's the basic thing, right? I've said this about other guys too, but so when you look at young players, oftentimes you have to project out, and a lot of guys are never going to reach that, right? We love to sit here and go, oh, well, this young guy is going to be this. This young guy is going to be that, right? And most of them are not going to be. And that's as true with Fawn of as anybody else, right? I could sit here and say, well, if they can just make it more disciplined and yada, 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 maybe I'll get it together. I will say that if I'm going to count on a guy to make those improvements, I'd rather it be a guy who has a great reputation since before he came to the league as a dude who just works his tail off day in, day out. It hasn't yielded that much yet, but I would rather take that shot on a guy like Thon, whose reputation is that he's just an absolute workhorse, than, quite frankly, than a guy like Stanley, who doesn't actually have a reputation of being an absolute grinder and workhorse. There's, there are reports he wasn't always in the best shape. He often wasn't working on the right things. He'd spend too much time playing in Drew Leagues, that sort of thing. You don't hear those kinds of things about Thon. All you hear is that he's just this great workout monster. He constantly works out so hard. He tries so hard constantly. So if you're going to take a shot on a bad NBA player becoming a good one, I'd rather take that shot on a guy who has that reputation. Now, that said, Thon also has a far less intriguing um, player profile if he becomes better. Like, there's still a universe where Stanley Johnson becomes a Jimmy Butler type, right? But there's definitely no universe where Thon becomes that good. But that's the last thing I'd say about it. So not a big fan of Thon, but he's there is a chance he becomes worthwhile. So Koo, you can say your last bit, and Hal, if you want to say anything else, you can say it after him. Just I'm good. Just, just the only thing I was going to say is that Joe talked about how Stanley didn't want to be here anymore. They were looking for the future, all that stuff. This is what I'll say: the Pistons ended up still trying to go go for the playoffs. We made the playoffs. I would have rat misses me personally, GM coup. I would have just held on to Stanley. He didn't want to leave. If he wanted to leave, I would just let him walk in the offseason, then whatever. I just let him walk. He's not some, it's not like he's Kyrie Irving or someone that I just desperately need to get value for before I lose him for nothing. I'm, I'm going to use him. He had more value to us this year than Thon did this year. I believe he had more value to us this year than Thon's ever going to have for us in any particular season. So I would have just rolled him out this season. If he wanted to leave, let him leave. But Stanley, it was desperately needed down the season when we went against literally any wing that had had eyeballs and arms and hands. And when we got when we got to the playoffs, Giannis literally just took a shit on us. And Stanley, Stanley, and as we know throughout our years of watching, Stanley was one of the people in the league that did it. Like no one's going to stop stop Giannis but if there's anybody in the league Stanley's one of those guys that has the best chance one of those best chances at doing what he can with Giannis and we desperately needed it even not even against Giannis it's Chris Middleton someone literally any wing that was competent get, looked like Michael Jordan against us and I believe that that does that would have served us more value this year than anything Thon's going to do for us moving forward okay we really, because we've been going for a half hour, we should probably get right into the draft. This is really the Hal and, and Koo but, podcast. Um, before we do, Koo, I don't think we should talk about it beyond a basic say, just because... Oh, I'm done. I don't, you can still that be I don't want... But if the Pistons wave and stretch John Lure, I will be furious, okay? I just want to put that out there. No, no. Koo, you probably saw... 
if that happens, I will be furious. I just want that on the record now. Oh, that would okay. be one of the I dumbest possible no, things. Yeah, okay? So I, I don't think that we're supposed to talk about beyond that, but that would be terrible, okay? So we're going to get into draft stuff. This is literally the reason why Hal is here, and we've only, you know, we're only 32 minutes into the podcast before we get into it. So um, me and Koo are obviously not really college basketball guys. We don't follow the draft a whole lot. I think I follow a little bit more peripherally than Koo does, um, but Hal is really, really knowledgeable about such things. So um, I don't know. Do, Hal, do you kind of want to lead us into some players that are options or you know, I think, yeah, I think you should just kind of lead this whole thing because you know a lot more about it. So just give us, I guess, here's where we'll start, okay? We'll start in a list in your head. You know, you can, it doesn't have to be exact order, but with guys, so obviously realistic guys that could be available at the Pistons. We'll start with who you think would be their best pick, and we'll just sort of work our way down through guys that you think would be your best, and we'll just kind of work our way down through guys, okay? Uh, So there's kind of, a lot of names that are really interesting that are probably going to be gone by the time the Pistons get there. Um, guys like DeAndre Hunter would be perfect, but he's going to probably be top five, if not top ten pick. Um, someone like Jarrett Culver, I was really high on early, and he shot up draft boards. Kobe White out of North Carolina would have been interesting. Darius Garland. Getting closer to the Pistons pick, some of the guys that have really interested me, uh, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, uh, Cameron Johnson I'm really high on Dylan Windler he's not really projected to be in that range but he would be on my board uh, some of the guys you hear mocked to us Monsieur Little uh, Romeo Langford and there are some guys where it's like PJ Washington Grant Williams uh, more like power forwards personally my guy is Mikhail Alexander Walker I think he's one of the most interesting players in the draft, the cousin of uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander, the Clippers rookie. Okay, hold uh, on. I want to bring up this guy's stats so I can look at it while you start your talking. What's his name? Nikhil Alexander Walker. Okay, go for it. So the the big selling point is he's got pretty good size. He's not a true three, but he can kind of play a little bit of one, a little bit of two, a little bit of three uh, at about 6'5 with a 6'10 wingspan. About 205 pounds uh, that's not the bulkiest or like strongest frame but that's good enough uh, he shot well enough from three 37 percent shot well enough at the line 78 percent those aren't amazing marks but those are marks that should translate to being a good enough NBA three-point shooter but beyond that he's a really nice creative player um, kind of as a secondary creator, not a not a true point guard, but a guy who can pass with either hand. The big, uh, the big, kind of like Draftnik's point everyone likes to make is he's an amazing left-handed passer when he's right-handed, and he's just a guy where if you put him on the Pistons, you put him next to Blake, and you put him next to Andre, and you put him next to Reggie, he's a guy who can create off passes, create off kickouts, do a whole lot of things with the ball, and then he's not an amazing defender, but he projects as like a a B minus defender on the other end. So he's a guy who's going to at least hold his own. And that just kind of checks just about every box the Pistons need. So that's why he's one of my favorite guys in the draft. Okay. So I'm just looking at, I don't know. I looked at this dude a little bit because this is, he's been, he's, so this is a Virginia Tech guy. Um, so he's been talked about a little bit. Uh, one of the main things that pops out to me is that 
first off, particularly in conference play this past season, he drew a lot of fouls, right? That's what his yeah. stats. And that, to me, is always so – when I'm looking at college guys and whether or not their games will translate to the NBA, drawing fouls is always something that I look at because if you're not drawing a lot of fouls in college, then you're really not going to be good enough to get to the line at all in the NBA. And it's hard Absolutely. to be – a terribly effective it's like there were a few times that people would you know they'd ask me what do you think about this guy and i'd watch some you know youtube highlights i'd look at his statistical profile and if a dude is supposed to be a good score but he doesn't get to the line particularly in conference play and that's something that's important when you're looking at stats for college guys because oftentimes college basketball teams will play cupcakes before they get to their conference schedule so um but like he had a free throw rate of 45.4 percent in conference this past season which is really that's really good like, that's yes. bordering on elite levels. And so for a wing player, that's a really nice. And like you said, he's got decent passing numbers too. Um, so, like, is he the sort of guy that you would say – so you said he should at least be a fairly competent defender. Do you think that he would be sort of um, – you could almost say, like, the safe pick, if that makes sense? I think so. The, the one big knock – on Alexander Walker is he's not this crazy athlete. Um, you know, he changes gears really well and he's got good enough agility and he played good defense with good agility, but he's not this amazing explosive guy. Um, and that was a knock against his cousin, Shea Gilgis Alexander as well. And I think Shea's actually still a little more athletic than Alexander Walker is. But at the same time, he... You know, he he was still an impact defender at the college level. He's still a guy that looks like you can put him on to maybe not the, the Kyrie Irvings of the world, but you can put him on ball handling guards and he's going to be able to handle it. You can put him on uh, two guards playing off the ball. He can handle it. You can probably put him on some threes if they're not dominant threes and he's going to be able to handle it. So like, so then he maybe doesn't have the same upside that some guys might have, but there's a you know so yeah so he'd pretty much be the safe pick then um, I, I think so i think he's maybe not safe. the same upside but he does have and i'm looking at his statistical profile is certainly a good one i'm um, over both of his seasons he shot 38.3 percent. one thing that i wonder and you hopefully will know um was he primarily a catch and shoot guy or was he more or was he doing much pulling up off the dribble on those threes both okay. a lot of both so, because that's another thing that I think when you look at guys for the future is that one thing that is really, we've really learned over the past, like really five years or so is that guys who are capable of hitting pull-up three-pointers are really, really valuable. And that's like, when I think about Luke Kennard, that's one of the things that's potentially the most intriguing thing about Luke Kennard going forward is that last season, he started to hit some of those pull-up and step-back threes where he's got the ball and he's just creating them for himself. And the potential to do that more going forward is maybe the best chance he has to become a really good player. So if this is a guy who's doing some of those tough pull-ups, now obviously he's probably not going to be like, he's not a Luke Kennard level shooter, but just being able to do that sort of thing, that is a really valuable skill. So if he's not hitting all pull-ups, it also just makes the 37% last year look better because they're not just easy catch and shoot looks. He's definitely a guy where if you, if you run a pick and roll, and you kick it out to him in the corner and, you know, somebody closes out. And so Andre runs over and sets a screen for him and he's got to create his own offense in the corner or something. He's got the talent to operate a pick and roll, get downhill and make a kick out 
or find his own shot in the pick and roll. He can do that, which is what's really appealing. He's not a true point guard or you know a volume creator, but if you put him at, in that situation, he's going to get something positive out of it. Okay. So then here would be the last thing I'd ask about that, and then I don't know if Cool will have anything to ask, but if he does, he can ask after this. Um, let's say, so he's he can put the ball on the floor and do stuff out of the pick and roll. Do you think that his ability there would be closer to, like, Luke Kennard, Reggie Bullock, or Langston Galloway? Much closer to Luke Kennard. Okay. Uh, he's he's going to be he's he's a much more of a prober um than like Reggie Bullock was. I mean Reggie Bullock was basically I'm going to get downhill and I'm either making the obvious pass or I'm going to shoot that floater mid-range thing. Yeah. Um you know, a lot more like Luke Kennard where he's going to get in, he might jump stop and pivot. Uh you know, he like I said earlier, he doesn't have the athleticism, but he's really good about just kind of dipping his shoulders and finding pockets of space to operate in. Uh which was a really positive sign because I noticed the lack of athleticism myself early on. And then I noticed all the ways he's kind of created crafty things to deal with it. And I think, you know, he's a guy where if he's running a pick and roll, I'm going to be pretty happy with that. So then a last thing, I guess, then would be, and this is always a little bit of a worry with these types of guys from college to the NBA, is that if he needs to do all this crafty stuff to create space in college, do you think that that's something that will translate to the NBA? Because there's some guys that sort of like, if your athleticism is already to the point where, you know, being stretched to the point where you need to do all this crafty stuff to create space in college, there's a lot of guys who then get to the NBA and there's nothing they can do to shake NBA defenders. Now, to your point, um, Luke Kennard is a guy who had to do lots of those crafty things to make space in college. And he's started particularly his past season. He can do it in the NBA too. So, That'll be my last question. Do you think he's a guy that that's going to translate to the NBA, or do you think there'll be a real worry whether or not he'd be able to use those same crafty skills to create against NBA defenders? I think there's two kinds of craft. There's the craft we see from Luke Kennard, which is a lot of poise and composure and just kind of playing under control and knowing where you are and knowing what you want to do. And there are the guys whose version of craft is, I know how to crab dribble my way into mid-range shots that don't translate in the NBA against increased length and all that. And I think he's got that Luke Kennard craft. I, I, I don't think he's going to be a guy who just immediately projects as an all-star going forward, but I, I think he's going to be an effective player for many years because he's got an, a very high skill floor, and I think he's going to be able to translate it. Okay. Koo, do you have any questions about Mikhail Alexander Walker here? Nope. <laughs> I'm just sitting back and learning. You really about to just mute yourself? I told like you, I don't know anything. I don't even know who that man is. I don't know anything about him. Don't know what college he went to. I was just listening, learning. Okay. Well, I hope that on the next couple, you can at least listen closely enough and not just be in the group chat to at least ask a couple of intelligent questions, hopefully. Fair enough. Um, so, help move on to whoever, who, another guy. Give us another one. So, one of the other guys that I'm fond of is Cameron Johnson out of UNC. Uh, Johnson is, in my mind, maybe the best shooter in the draft. If he's not the best shooter, he's top three. Uh, we're talking a guy who's 6'8", 6'10", wingspan, 205 pounds. So he's very long. And he's kind of got the, the stylistic profile of a Clay Thompson. Not necessarily that good. But that's if you're, if you're thinking the kind of shots he takes, the kind of defense he's going to play, Clay Thompson's a name that comes to mind. 
Uh, he's the guy, he shot 45.7% from three in college, and I've seen him come off a screen to like 26 feet, well behind the, the NBA line, and launch a three just casually. Um, he shoots 82% at the line, so that's just something that's going to immediately translate. He's a guy who's going to, offensively, he's, he's not a great passer, but kind of similar to Reggie Bullock, uh, Roy Williams does a good job of just kind of coaching guys to make system passes and make the obvious reads and make them quickly and decisively, and I think he does that well. Uh, he's, he's not going to be the guy who's going to isolate. He's not going to be the guy that runs a pick and roll for you, but if you're looking for the guy who's going to stand in the corner and shoot or come off a pin down and shoot, Cameron Johnson's one of the best in the draft when it comes to looking for that kind of prospect. And then defensively, he's he's got to realize uh, that he's big. <laughs> he's one of those guys who doesn't seem to realize all the time that he's like 6'8", but he chases shooters well. He's got pretty good technique attacking screens. I don't necessarily want him playing the four right now, not until he gets uh, a little more weight on him and kind of realizes that how big he is and how long he is. But he can play the three, he can play the two, he can chase shooters around. He's generally going to be a good team defender, I think. Um, so Cam Johnson is also the guy who played five years in college. So, um, I, it's just something that who could maybe even give a thought on. So how, what is your opinion on a guy who, so he's what, 23 already? Yes. Probably. What's your thought on drafting a guy who is, I, you know, that that's, that is legitimately old for a rookie. He played five years in college. What are your thoughts on drafting a guy who's 23 years old? You, you have to ask what you want to see improved going forwards. And for Cam Johnson, it's basically, can I keep you in a weight room and keep you fit and keep you physical? And just, you know, do you have the IQ to learn new systems and learn the NBA game? Because I already know that you can make the simple passes, and I already know that you can hit the shots I need you to hit. So I'm pretty okay with that. If he was 23 and he had Evan Turner's shot profile, and I was like, oh, God, I have to teach this kid how to shoot threes. That's when I would be concerned about it. Now, the you're not going to get as much uh, upside out of him. You're not going to get, uh, you know, if he, if he ends up being the Dirk Nowitzki where he spends 20 years with your team, he's not going to be able to spend 20 years with your team because he wasted five of them in college. But I'm not that worried about it um, in terms of what he's going to do right now. And I think when it comes to being safe picks, He's the kind of guy who walks in, immediate contributor, right now, and you're going to be happy with that because he spent five years in college and he's gotten all those mistakes out of the way. Um, I guess one other thing I'd ask about him is he's a guy that there's a lot of people who are really high on him. Like in Pistons Twitter and such, there's a lot of people who like him because obviously the Pistons could really use shooting and he's probably, like you said, he's probably the best shooter in this draft. Um, is what sort of lift does he get when he takes his shots? Because there are some guys that they're these phenomenal shooters in college, but they just, because he's not necessarily a great athlete. Is he going to be able to get enough lift on his shots to shoot over NBA defenders and that sort of thing, even when they're just doing normal closeouts? Or do you think that there's a chance that he's one of these guys that just the gaps are smaller in the NBA and that messes with him enough? Or is that not something you'd be worried about at all? He's, he's not 
like a crazy leaper on a shot, but he's got a quick release, and he's he's one of the guys, he shoots early in his shot, so his his energy's all going to that shot. I've I've legitimately seen him shoot twenty seven footers without a problem, quickly, off the you know off a run, turning and shooting these things off the catch. I'm not worried about him getting a shot off at all, and he's you know he's six eight with a six ten wingspan, and he's got a high enough release, so it's it's not like closeouts are going to be the most disruptive thing. Okay, so as a shooter then. He's really kind of the complete package then. He's accurate, he's got a high release, and a quick release. So he's just the sort of guy that you, you're you not at all worried about him getting those catch-and-shoot looks off or anything, even against long defenders. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Um, hmm. And then you said that he can probably be a pretty good team defender, uh, probably not a great individual defender. That would maybe be a little bit of a worry just because the Pistons could really use a few more individual yeah, he's, defenders. He's not going to be your stopper at the, th- you know, he's not the guy where it's like, okay, Kawhi's out there. We need a guy who's can, who can, you know, stop Kawhi for three possessions in a row. He's not doing that. If you need someone to uh, maybe chase Chris Middleton around a couple of screens and then be long in the post, maybe he can handle that. If you want somebody to chase a Kyle Korver around, that's something I think he can handle. Uh, playing against the LeBrons and the Kevin Durants and the Kawhi Leonard's is going to be a struggle for him. Okay. And then you did say earlier, so he is like six, nine, but you wouldn't want to, at least right away, you would not want to see him playing power forward. You said, right? Yeah. He, he doesn't seem to realize that he's big. It, it, he's just one of those guys where he kind of, I don't want to say soft because that's not fair to call a guy soft. He just doesn't play with force. And, uh, you know, he's not the kind of guy who can who can impact you with, like, his hips on defense. You know, if you post him up, he's not going to be uh, holding his, his spot. So at the four, it's just going to be really hard for him, I think. Okay. And, Ku, I see that you've got your hand up button raised, so go ahead and speak. All right, Joe wanted me to speak on the draft. Here's my one question. Hi, right, Hal. I've seen you tweet about this guy. I, see, I, I believe you, you're not a very big fan of him at all. But I've, I follow other people, and they speak about him. So I've read your analysis on him a little bit. I've seen other people's analysis on him a little bit. I've seen a multiple, a lot of people project him to the Pistons, think that he could be a good option if he's still there. Uh, what's, here's my question. I have two questions. One, why aren't you a big fan of Kevin Porter Jr.? What is it that you don't like about him? Why? What is it? And then two, if you why you don't like him, what is it about him that you can understand why other people – see what other people see in him and what they would see for him to be a good fit for the Pistons. So Kevin Porter Jr. So the big advantage he has is that he's got the, the mixtape stuff going for him. Uh, His, his big thing is he shoots step back threes like crazy. And he, uh, he's, he tested poorly. I, I shouldn't say poorly. He tested at a mediocre level at the combine for athleticism, but he's got the dunk highlight, highlight reels for him. The big concern is that he doesn't really do a lot of anything else. Uh, when you talk about a guy who, who has a reputation as an athletic scorer who can shoot, you'd like to see him draw more than two free throws a game and you'd like to see him convert more than 52% at the line. Those are major red flags for that archetype. 
uh, you'd like to see this guy get more than 1.4 assists. He really didn't want to pass the ball unless he was getting the, the highlight alley-oop assist. You'd like to see this guy be a good defender. He wasn't. He's got he's 6'5", six, 6'9", six, wingspan. Should have been a reasonable defender given his athletic profile. He wasn't. Uh, he didn't want to go to the rim. And then when you look at these step-back threes, they, they're really interesting... Um, you know, especially when you look at someone like Harden, who just built an MVP campaign basically off the step back three. But then you kind of break down Porter Jr.'s shot, and he's got the Lonzo Ball thing going on, where he gathers kind of low into the left and then catapults it across his body, and that's why he's shooting step back threes because he needs that lean back and that that extra momentum to get that shot up and away. So when you just kind of look at him and project him going into the NBA, you say he's a guy who needs the ball in his hands. He's not going to shoot off the catch as well as he's as he will off the bounce uh, he's a guy who's not going to drive to the rim he's not going to create for others he's not going to defend and it's just really hard to see where exactly his value is especially at the 15 you know he's a guy where if you told me um, you know we, we drafted him at 45 as a gamble fine that's acceptable at, at 15 I'd have a problem with it uh, when it comes to what do people see in him you're seeing the highlight reels and he has plenty and he's you know he's one of those guys who's got like a great PR team that really pushed him early on and I just I don't think he really backed it up at all um another thing with him because people were asking me about him on Twitter a few days ago and I did a little peripheral looking up this is one of the few guys we're talking about that I've actually done a little bit of stuff beforehand on um it's a really big red flag so on the season Kevin Porter had a true shooting percentage of 55.9%, which you think, oh, that's pretty solid. It's not bad. In conference, which once again is the Pac-12, which is terrible at basketball, he had a true shooting percentage of 50.5. That is really bad. And that's a red flag that once he got into conference play, in a conference that's not even that good, his scoring efficiency really took a big nosedive. And that's always a big red flag. And like Cal mentioned earlier, he didn't draw a lot of fouls either. And also, he turned the ball over more often than he assisted. So, yeah, I'm I'm kind of with Hal on that. I would not. I mean, look, as I said, I don't know enough about these guys that I'd say too strongly no matter what. If they drafted him, I'd certainly be willing to give him a chance. But based on what I see, I would not be particularly pleased with picking him with the 15th pick. Uh, there's the other just, big there's a lot of red flags. Yeah, and that is and the, so. Go ahead. Well, just he's he's 19. So if if you're the kind of guy who says, "Oh, I, I still like the profile, and I think he can progress and be better in the future," he's 19. So you, he has that going for him. Okay. Cool. Do you want to tack anything onto that? It was your question. No, I was just. I, he said everything. I was just wondering because um, you guys, I know Joe knows who this is, but uh, Jackson Jackson Frank was tweeting about him like a couple weeks ago. He projected him to the Pistons. I tweeted him a little bit about it. He told me what he thought about him. So then I went and watched a little, about, a little bit of him. Not not, not film. I watched highlights. Like you said, he does his uh, uh, he has a good PR team apparently. He knows how to get his highlights. He has good highlights. So that's why I watched. And I thought he was pretty athletic in those. But if you're saying I, – I was just listening. Pretty much you answered everything. Okay. Um, Koo, is there any other player you wanted to ask about? No, that was the only guy I was interested in. Okay. Before we let Hal keep going, I've got one I'd like to ask about because 
I know that you are not a big fan of him, um, but I'm curious to have you lay it all out, okay? Give me the reasons why you are not fond of Romeo Langford. So Langford is a guy I've kind of I've I've, I've actually kind of been a little wishy washy on Langford. I, I he's never been my favorite pick at all. Um, I've kind of come around a little bit to the idea of of him in, in a Pistons uniform. He wouldn't be my pick, but if it happened, I I could see the the upside. He's got he's got the frame first of all to play the two or the three. He's six six with the six eleven wingspan, and that's great. Uh, two hundred some pounds, that's great. Um, his big selling point is he's an incredibly silky, polished ball handler and finisher around the rim. Whether it's driving off a post up, driving in the pick and roll, he he just he has the the, the innate knowledge of how to gather the ball how to get the ball up on the rim, how to get it to drop. And that's, you know, you can't really teach that. It's one of those instinctive things that's just very fun to watch. For the some guys, red... the ball just goes in. Yeah, and he's he, he really feels like one of those. The big red flag is that for a guy who was a primary creator on a pretty bad Indiana team, he only averaged two assists. That's not good. That's not even close to good really for that kind of archetype for, for what you'd want out of him and then the other major red flag is that he shot 27% from three. Okay, on the three point shooting thing, okay, I've heard mixed things on that because there's a lot of people that have brought that up as like that should disqualify him from the Pistons wanting to draft him because they need shooting, which isn't totally unfair but there's also been a decent number of people who have pointed out the fact that he messed up his thumb pretty early in the season and that uh, sort of screwed with him and there's even been a few people who said I think actually the um, draft express video on him too said this that there's a lot of people who have speculated that if Romeo Langford had just shut it down when his thumb got hurt he would very likely still be a viewed as you know a top five pick or top five talent um, so what is your opinion on the hurt thumb do you think that you know being healthy he'd become a good shooter again because he was supposedly a pretty good shooter in high school or do you think that there is – I know that he doesn't have the cleanest shot release in the world. It's a little funky. So just – and you also – you like to break down them shot releases too. So just do you think that his shot is something that's easily fixable or do you think that would be a really significant issue if they drafted him? I'm not crazy worried about the shot. He's, he's got some stuff I want him to clean up, just some some – he doesn't always gather it perfectly online. His footwork off the catch wasn't always amazing. The, the one thing that did look – nice was that when he was driving and then kind of pulling up for mid-range shots he has great touch and he did shoot seven uh 72 percent at the line that's not great but that's still better than what you'd expect from a guy shooting 27 percent from three and it's one of those things where the thumb is absolutely going to have an effect whether you think it's a 10 percent effect or a three percent effect you know that's that's debatable we who knows the impact it's going to have I think he's going to become a good shooter. What I don't know is how long it's going to take and whether or not it's just a getting healthy thing or whether or not it's a, this guy needs three or four years to rebuild a shot thing. Um, the big concern for me when it came to Langford is the, the assists was the one thing where it's just like, if this is the guy I want to put the ball in his hands, because he was an elite pick and roll scorer for himself 
in college. He was in like the 93rd percentile or something. I don't have the synergy stuff for college. Um, but, but he was way up there in terms of getting his own points out of the pick and roll. But in the NBA, that's going to get shut down if you can't also create for others. And he didn't show me any of that in college. Now, he wasn't given the craziest amount of opportunities at Indiana, but I need to see that to be a bigger fan. So how about this as a sign for potential hope with him in that area? So first off, like you mentioned, Indiana was terrible. Like, he, it's not like he had an abundance of guys to pass to, but even that Big is sad. Um, he did average more assists than turnovers by a little bit. He did have a higher assist rate than turnover rate. It's there. So even though, yeah, he didn't get a lot of assists, but despite being a pretty heavy ball handler, he did not turn it over very often, which that has to be worth something. So do you think that, I guess here's the way I'd put it, okay? If you wanted to be optimistic, which I mean, I'm on, I've tweeted it a few times. I i don't know enough about the other guys to say that he'd necessarily be the best pick or not, but I'd be okay with him, with picking him based on what I've seen. But if you want to be optimistic, could you say that one of the reasons that he didn't always pass that much is because, I, like you said, he's a very natural, fluid finisher, really good finisher at the hoop. So it may well just be he was kind of like, well, I can finish. Because it's not like he was necessarily throwing terrible passes all the time and racking up tons of turnovers. So do you think that that's a thing that is worth putting any stock into? Or do you think that's just he's just not a very good passer, so he didn't pass very much, and that's why he didn't have very many turnovers? No, that's fair. That's that's a, a fair thing to suggest. It's It's... And it's one of those things I think a lot about Devin Booker when I look at him. And as this guy who Booker was, was different in college and that Booker was kind of just used as an off-ball shooter. But he was one of those guys who walked into the NBA and basically became an elite pick-and-roll offense by himself. And Langford has that kind of potential to just kind of become a great scorer in the pick-and-roll. He just didn't show it in college. And it's hard for me to say, oh, this is what this guy is until you prove it to me or at least show me consistent flashes in the way most of these prospects do. Okay. So you wouldn't say he's the best pick, but you are coming around to the idea that he might be a decent one. Like you could live with that. If, if his name's the one that's called on draft day, it's not going to take me too long to come up with, you know, positive things to say. Okay. Um, one of the last things about him that I think, would make me makes me like him to the Pistons more is that you know one of his biggest complaints that everybody had is that he was a sort of lazy disinterested defender which is fair but that is like that is literally that is Dwayne Casey's wheelhouse right if you can't count on Dwayne Casey to get a young player to buy in on defense and play the right way on defense then Dwayne Casey's there's not any reason that he's your head coach, right? Like that is his wheelhouse. That is his specialty. So I feel better about drafting him because I think that there's a very good chance that Dwayne Casey would get him playing better defense. And also the fact that particularly in today's climate, there are a lot of guys, particularly these one and done types who pretty blatantly don't really care in college. And then when they get to the NBA and start getting real checks, they start to care more. And that's something that, I mean, given the way that the situation those guys are in, I don't really blame them. Um, I do see that Koo has his hand raised. No, there. it's so the same Koo. thing. It, no, it's along the same lines. I just want to get this in before Hal answered. Uh, about uh, Langford, 
along with what Joe was talking about and what you said earlier about him not being uh, a very good passer or him not showing you that he's a very good passer out of the pick and roll. Uh, you also mentioned earlier on, early on in your uh, sentiment about him that he was just playing, and Joe also said it, uh, that he's he was playing on a terrible, just awful team. Now, uh, obviously, I wouldn't be on here if I didn't watch and analyze basketball, but I also play basketball, and just from from both of them, I I would say I would just ask you this, Hal: How much of that do you believe? Because just from listening, I don't I, like I said, I don't watch much of it at all. Actually, none of it. But just from your description of what you're saying and just what Joe's saying, immediately what comes to my mind is, well, he was on a bad team. He's doing everything on offense. And if everything if he doesn't trust or his the rest of his teammates can't really do anything, he's going to have to do all the scoring load. And then that usually trickles down to the defensive side of the floor because if, if you're doing everything, you're probably not going to give very much effort on defense because you're not going to have just the energy to do it. So how much do you think, uh, along with what Joe said, how much do you think it has to do with that? Do you think that plays a role at all? Or do you just think that he just he just doesn't care about defense? He's not a good passer. He's not that good. That I'm just making an excuse. No, I I mean I'm a big believer in momentum and and mentality. So I think that's definitely an impact. Now the the question is, does Langford's lack of ability to overcome that reflect on him at all? And I'm that's that's. I don't like to speculate on that because I'm not in those locker rooms. That's I, I, I do think when it comes to the defense, the nice thing is he wasn't a crazy fouler. Um, you know, he wasn't the guy who was olaying people around the rim and then just like hacking them. Uh, you know, he was sleepy. A lot of college players are sleepy. A lot of young NBA players are sleepy. It takes a lot of these guys a long time to become passable defenders and if he wants to be a defender he's got all the potential in the world to be a good defender um i'm not i'm not gonna like he he didn't show me something where i'm gonna be like this is a dude who's never gonna be a good defender there are guys you've seen like that before uh it's just langford didn't show me he wants to be one right now uh the passing thing i think it's still a thing where it's like okay you're double covered there's a guy wide open the corner i want to see you make that corner pass i want to see you try it even early in the season he wasn't doing that so that's that's where it's like even before maybe you lost a little bit of hope and intensity because the team wasn't good i would have liked to see you try it and and experiment a little bit with it so he's he's just a guy. He's got a lot of potential. He's just got a lot to prove at the next level. I'll, and okay, real quick, Joe. I don't know if you have something to say, but I just want to say this real quick. Uh, out of all the guys that you've talked about, I've been sitting here listening, you know, learning, trying to learn about these players since you know I'm the draft is tomorrow. I gotta say, how out of all the players that you've sat here and talked about with Joe and described and all the things, Langford has definitely caught my ear, and like it's definitely from just from what you've said about him, it's definitely the guy that I've. I've definitely would like to see us draft out of all the guys you've drafted, all the guys you've talked about. He's definitely the one that caught my eye from, or not my eye, because I'm not watching, but my ears from what you're listening, what, from what you're saying. That's fair. Uh, he's one of those guys where early on in the draft process, I was really out on him because the red flags just kept popping up when it came to the shooting and the passing and kind of the more I watched him, towards the end of my scouting stuff it was just like you know what he's got so many other positives like i said i i would have preferred alexander walker 
after Alexander Walker, there's not a guy where I'd be like, oh my god, I can't believe they passed on that guy for Romeo Langford. So I don't I don't necessarily blame you for for loving him more than the rest so far. That's that's totally fair to me. And then last thing on Langford, um, do you think that because this has been sort of my takeaway more or less, would you say that? it's fair to say that Langford probably would have the highest upside of a guy that the Pistons might be able to get at their 15th pick. Probably. Certainly, I don't think there's anyone else who stands up above him. There are a couple other guys who are level, maybe, but I I think Mm -hmm. he's he's definitely in that upper echelon. Okay, cool. So we both asked about two guys you didn't want to bring up before. Oh, go go for it, Coop. Go for it, Coop. Wait, wait. Was your question just now, Joe, about Langford? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, how I have this left. It's a podcast, no, I wasn't, man. I, I didn't. I, I did. I just want to make sure I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't just bring going back to Langford when we were trying to get past them. But uh, last thing, how I have to ask. I don't know if you. I don't know if I. Well, Joe, saying that I'm not listening, but. Uh, would would Langford be someone you would you could see stepping right in and playing if we drafted him? Uh, I'd want to see him shoot the ball. If if you told me that his thumb had healed and he was shooting thirty four percent from three all of a sudden, then yeah, I could see him stepping in as as a day one um, shooting guard or day one small forward. Otherwise, I think he's kind of suited to a bench role. Um, in, in a similar way to Luke Kennard, where I think he's going to feel a lot better about himself if he's got the ball in his hands. Well, so um, I, I would think me, he would be more suited. Let to me bench. rephrase Ku's question a moment, okay? Because given the state of the Pistons' wing rotation, there's a very good chance that whoever they draft ends up playing a lot right away. Would you feel good about Romeo Langford playing? We'll just be, we'll say twenty four minutes per game. Would you feel good about that? Not just well, that's what we have on the wing, so we have to play him. Would you be like, yes, this is a good thing per game? Sure. Yeah. the The concern would be if you put him, Bruce Brown, and Andre all together in a lineup, that would be a struggle. And I don't know who else is going to start next to him. You know, it would it would be complicated. It's it's just on an individual level. No, I'm not worried about Romeo Langford coming in and playing real minutes right away. I think he's got enough in his bag to to compete at least at a basic level. Okay, cool. Um, so, I give us someone else that you want to talk about. You could talk about as many people or as few people as you want. So, if you've got more, give us more. Well, so there there are two other guys who are kind of in the the high risk, high reward profile. Uh, the one I, I think we can do a real short stint on, because I don't think there's a lot to go over, is uh, Nasir Little. You know, um, he's a guy where, um, a lot like Stanley Johnson, he comes in with an absolutely NBA-ready body. Unlike Stanley Johnson, I don't think he has shown kind of some of the creative flashes and even some of the defensive flashes I wanted to see from him in college. Uh, and that's kind of the concern. The The big thing about Stanley was always you could point back to, you know, he was a good passer with a good game feel, and he just never seemed to execute that in the NBA. Little came in, shot 27% from three in college, and 
didn't pass at all. And so that, you know, uh, he's one of those guys where if, if you're making a gamble, I'd so much rather take Langford than Little because I'm just not sure if he really has shown us anything other than being a crazy good athlete with an NBA body. Okay. Um, so, and I guess the thing with him, so he, like you brought up, he was not, even by college standards, now he did score a decent amount for his minutes, but even by college standards, he was not a particularly effective score. Uh, his efficiency wasn't that great. Uh, but the thing though, where I mean, is you said that he didn't even necessarily show that great of flashes on the defensive end in college, though. No, for a guy who kind of has a reputation as being like this high impact defender, you know, you'd hope he was, you know, if, if he's going to be bad on offense, you'd hope he would be at least like Michael Kidd Gilchrist, you know, somebody who's just impacting with length and intensity. And he was one of those guys where it's like clearly he's having an impact because he's long and because he's strong but he didn't show me like crazy technique chasing guys around screens he didn't show me uh, great footwork defending drives I was just not as impressed with him and if you're going to take a gamble on somebody with length and athleticism I think there are a couple of other options that are better okay. now you said there was another guy who would be a kind of high upside uh, low low side who is the other guy well so the other guy that you see a lot of people especially uh, I've seen the reddit community go crazy for is Bull Bull and uh, I hate to say it, I'm just so all the way out on the Bull Bull experiment uh, you know he's 7'3 in shoes 7'7 seven, seven wingspan and just if I told you that a guy was 7'3 with a 7'7 seven, seven wingspan how much do you think he'd weigh? Uh, 250 at least yeah, probably 250, 260, yeah. 270. So, so Bull Bull measured in at about 208 pounds. And the <laughs> scary thing so is maker I'm, told, I'm, I'm told that he may have been closer to 225, 230 before he had his foot injury, which ended his college season. And if that's the case, then we're talking about a guy who had to be in daily conditioning just to maintain 230 pounds. So you're, we're not looking at a guy who's maybe going to be able to get up to 250 with great conditioning and all that. We're looking at a guy who's going to be playing at 220 despite being over seven feet tall, and that's extremely concerning. In the same way it is for for Thon Maker. Now Bull has a lot of great, interesting skills. He's a he's an interesting ball handler for his size. He shot 52% from three in his limited games. He played nine games at Oregon. Uh, He's, a, he's an outrageous shot blocker. Uh, he swallows guys whole. He moves his feet somewhat well for a guy his size. He's not the craziest agile player. Um, you know, there, there were a lot of really interesting skill things for Bull Bull, but it all comes back that, you know, it, it all comes back to the fact that if this is a guy I want to defend the post, I don't care if you're long. Andre Drummond is going to drop step and slam on you, and Andre Drummond doesn't know how to drop step. You're, he, you know, uh, <laughs> if I ask him to play the four, and get pulled out a bit, you know, the, the guards are going to blow him by, but I think some of the power forwards are just going to get into his body and screw him up. You know, like Paul Millsap is just going to ruin someone like Bull Bull because he doesn't have the weight to do anything. So it's, it's really hard to see where he can impact you in isolation on defense. Obviously, as a help side blocker, he's going to be great. 
Um, there's there's not much you have to worry about there. As a rebounder, I wonder, is he going to be able to rebound? He did well in college, but in college he's got a foot and a half on everyone. Are you going to be able to out-rebound, uh, I don't know, Rudy Gobert, Joel Embiid? Are you going to be able to go up to a center and just snatch the ball over him? I don't think so. And then he's already had a foot injury, and he's made out of glass, and he doesn't have a great frame. So is he going to be able to stay healthy? There's just a lot of red flags for Bull Bull, and I'm not I'm not really sure he's worth the gamble at this point. So with Bull Bull, which obviously you know this, even though I only played the nine games, the numbers he put up do really, really pop. Do you think that that's just kind of early season playing against cupcakes? Or, so like like you said, there are a lot of red flags. He's very skinny. He's got injury issues that you're worried about, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that there's a chance that if he were to stay healthy, and if he either maybe he manages to put on extra weight or he just sort of goes, does the Kevin Durant thing where even though he doesn't add a whole bunch of extra weight, he just gets great core strength. And even though he looks like a twig, he can survive. Do you think that if that happened, he could be that sort of like just really, really special player? Or do you think that those numbers that he put up in his nine games are just kind of a smokescreen? I think if he stays healthy and you're like, oh, God, Bull Bull has, has reached the peak of what Bull Bull is, I think you're still probably looking at the same thing we talk about Don Maker. You're looking at a guy who's a good weak side shot blocker and a guy who's shooting threes in pick-and-pop situations. I just don't think he's going to be able to get the strength to, to be an intense creator of any kind offensively. I, I don't see where the star power is for him. Mm-hmm. And when, when I, I'm looking at the schedule right now, uh, he only played like three, I, I guess in the nine games he played three teams, Iowa, Syracuse and Houston, who were kind of major league teams and he didn't do amazing against all of them Iowa really, as a Big Ten team which is going to be a lot more physical shut him down pretty badly um, you know, he didn't have the, the worst uh, like most cupcake schedule but it wasn't the you know, he didn't play anyone where I'm like, oh, God, they have a center who really should have blown up Bull Bull either. Okay. Uh, Koo, do you have anything you want to ask about either of those two guys? Nope. Okay. Anyone else you got for us, Hal? Um, let's see here. So one of the other guys that I really like who's a little lower on the list for most people is Dylan Windler uh, out of Belmont. And he's the guy where if you're if – you, like the idea of Cameron Johnson, but maybe you think, oh, I want Cam Johnson, but I want somebody a little more athletic. Uh, Dylan Windler is that guy. Uh, he's also almost 23, so he was a senior. Uh, but at 6'8-ish, 6'10 wingspan, uh, 200 pounds, he's a good leaper. Um, he's another guy who shot 43% from deep. Uh, and he shot 85% at the line. So we're talking about an elite shooter, a guy who was shooting on the move, off the catch all the time. Uh, he had a true shooting percent of 68%. So it's just a guy who converts. He had a great shot profile, didn't go in the mid-range at all. He's finishing at the rim or shooting threes. Uh, he was a really solid defender. Obviously, at Belmont, you're not going to get challenged the way you would at Duke. But he was a good enough defender where you're not. I'm not worried about him getting blown off the line all the time. Uh, so he's he's just another option where at, you know at 15 I think he'd be considered a reach if the Pistons were ever to like trade back down to like 22. Dylan Windler suddenly becomes somebody who I'm really interested in. 
and he's another guy who like he's going to make basic passes uh, in the offense. He can handle the ball a little bit, uh, and he actually he has a nice step back three and some of that stuff. So he he was a guy I was really interested in, especially if you if you're looking at a, a guy you can target after trading back. And then he'd hypothetically be another guy, you know, as a four-year college player and a really great shooter. Um, he'd be another guy who hypothetically would have a good shot of being able to come in and make an impact right away too, right? I think he walks onto the floor basically as you're starting three. I think he plays more physical than Cam Johnson does. And so if, if you're looking for a guy where you, you're just like, I need to draft the guy who can be my day one starter at the small forward position, I think Dylan Windler might actually be the best bet. Uh, Al, I have a question. Uh, this is this isn't a prospect question. This is just like a a general draft question that kind of just popped in my head. You guys talking about just now? You mentioned that uh, you think that he might be a little bit of a reach if this is like if we were to trade back, you'd take him. What I'm gonna, I just want to get your uh, your thoughts on this. Um, I don't know how I feel about that term reaching. What do you so do you believe a team like let's say? The, the Pistons find – it's 15th pick. The Pistons know someone they really want. They think that's the guy. That's the guy that's uh that's going to be the best, blah, blah, blah. But he's he's not projected to go to, like, I don't know, like 26, 27, 28, somewhere around there. Like, he's not projected to go anywhere from, from uh, anywhere, anywhere time soon. Do you, uh, do you think the Pistons – are you in the mindset that the team should just take him even though uh, he, he's not supposed to go yet? Or do you think teams should trade back? Or what, what, what's your mindset on that kind of thing? Because me personally, I don't know much about the draft, but just thinking about it uh, to my own, I don't, really, uh, I don't really like the term reaching, if you believe that's the guy. So there's, there's three parts to this answer. For okay. Me. The first part is that the draft board around the NBA is not necessarily the draft board we see in mocks and all that so you know we may think it's you know a reach and it may just be oh my god the nba really values dylan windler and you're you know you're you're talking to other scouts and they say the same thing inside the nba and you realize you got to go get them now regardless so that's just something to keep in mind number two if you get the guy you want you should never be embarrassed about that as far as i'm concerned internally you shouldn't consider anything a reach if he's on your draft board you should trust your draft board and go get him uh Number three, if you say, I like this guy, I love this guy, he's my guy, but I don't think the rest of the NBA does, you A, have to ask yourself why, but B, you should be attempting to trade back and, and you know, because the value for that pick around the league may be higher to somebody else and you should, you know, you should do your due diligence to trade and, and you know, find your way to, to getting the best value out of the pick possible. But, but in the most literal sense, you should never be embarrassed about getting the guy you want because you did the work that, and you should, you should trust the work you did. Now, this is – okay, so this is just my second part of my question. And I don't know if it's really a question. It's more of a statement. So this is just an example to me. I don't know – do people really think about – like do really, like a few years down the line, are we really going to think about that kind of thing? That's what I think of when I hear, when, when I hear people talk about this. So, for example, I don't know – I don't think this – once again, I'm not much of a draft person. I don't know how highly this person was uh, ranked for his draft, but I have to assume it wasn't the top of the the, the draft because he didn't go. But Steph Curry went, what, 7th, 8th in his draft? So 
eight. Eight. Yeah, he went eight. So if the Clippers take Steph Curry first overall, one, my first question would be, would people have said that they reached at that point? And then two, now we're like, what, where are we at 10 years later now? Are people, do people even care about it two years later when they see what Steph Curry is? So that's my thing. Like people on draft night, if they say you reach, but then like in a few years, let's say, okay. So for example, let's say, like you said, you do your due diligence, you try to trade back, you trade back, but then another team ends up taking the guy you want and he turns out to be a star. Was it really worth it trying to just get the value for the pick when in like a couple years down the line, we were not going to be caring about what the value of the pick was. That's just my thing. You can answer how okay, you cool. Here, no, I, I can get this, Koo. I can, I can, <laughs> I can handle this, okay? Here's what he means by get the most value out of the pick, right? So first off, if you're going to trade back and you really want a specific guy, so okay, so they really want Dylan Windler. They think he's the dude for the pick, right? He's high enough on their board that that's who they think they're going to pick. But they know, all right, you're not going to draft back if you have real fears that someone behind you is going to pick him. Okay, like that's just a thing, right? You've, if they really think he's the pick, what he means is how much nicer would it be if you know he's going to be available still at like 22, okay? And let's say that some team, who's someone that was, has been saying that they want to move up. There's been a few different teams that people have been saying they want to move up. But like, let's just say that a team wants to move up to 15 and they're willing to give the Pistons um, not only their first round pick, to swap those, but they're willing to also give the Pistons a second round pick or a future pick or something like that. Right. Like then you've got an extra pick in this draft. Right. And so you're still getting your guy and now you have an extra second round pick. And particularly given that after this season, don't the Pistons not have a second round pick in like the next three drafts or something like that. Like that could be really useful. So that's what he means by maximizing the value of the pick. So obviously if you know that Dylan Windler is your guy, okay you're not going to take a risk that someone else is going to draft him. But if you look around, it's like there's like nobody else who really, and you're really confident nobody else really even has this guy like hardly in the first round, just as an example. Okay. I don't know if that, that'd be true or not, but just as an example. So if you trade back to 22 or 23, you are 100% confident that your man's still going to be there. Then why not? So then when Hal said, you're going to do your due diligence, that's what that means. You're going to do your due diligence and see, you know, what if one of those teams wanted to move up to our pick and we could snag an extra asset, whether that's another second-round pick, take a flyer on a young player, that sort of thing. Because at that point, you're still getting your guy and you're getting extra stuff. That's what he means by that. Exactly. And if somebody else picks that guy in there and then he becomes a star, you screwed up. But guess what? (laughs) Screw-ups happen on draft night sometimes. The Pistons drafted Henry Ellenson. They drafted... Stanley Johnson instead of Devin Booker and they were really close to drafting Devin Booker like it's a risk you take but that's what he means by at least do your due diligence so if you think we can draft our guy with a later pick at least do your due diligence now if you don't find someone who wants to move into your spot I 100% agree with Hal and I agree with you this is your dude you did the work you think he's the best dude draft him but at the very least, do your due diligence and see if you could maybe pull something off where you make the best move possible, especially given the Pistons situation where they desperately need some more young guys on cheap contracts who are going to be able to play. Fair enough. Let's, let's just take this year as an example. The next people behind us are the Magic, the Hawks, the Pacers, the Spurs. Let's say you hear the Magic really loves someone else and they don't want him. You know the Hawks just drafted the kid out of Maryland whose name, uh, Herter, that's what it is. Uh, so maybe they don't need that same archetype. 
the Pacers already have Oladipo at the two. Uh, they've got the, the guy from Europe whose name is uh, Bogdanovich. Maybe they, they don't need him either. You know, you just go down the list. You know what? Maybe the next the next risk to pick him is 21, the Thunder. So if you get the, you know, if the Celtics at 20 or the Spurs at 19 call and they want to slide up a few spots, go ahead. There's nothing wrong with it. You, there's, you know, risk what you can afford to risk. That's all. Um, you know, you mentioned Steph Curry. And it's the, the one thing is, A, Steph Curry goes seven behind Ricky Rubio and Johnny Flynn. Uh, that's just a Timberwolves being Timberwolves. <laughs> Right. But, you know, the the guys picked ahead of him, Blake Griffin, Hashim Thabit, James Harden, Tyreek Evans, and then Rubio and Flynn. You know, nobody's going to fault you picking Griffin or Harden, but if you picked him over at Thabit or Tyreek Evans, like, nobody's going to be mad about that, especially looking back. I don't think nobody would have been mad at the time. Uh, you know, it, it there's definitely plenty of context, but get the guy you want and, and you know, make sure you're doing your, your due diligence, but get the guy you want. That's That's what matters. Fair enough. Is there anything else you want to really hit on here, Hal? Um, let's see. What else? Um, when it comes to, like, there, there are some guys. Uh, Rui Hachimura was, was a guy coming out of Gonzaga who, uh, a junior, but he's he's 21, so he's a little younger than some of the other guys. 6'8", long wingspan, uh, 225. He's a guy where I think he had a lot of hype coming in, and now it's a little little less hyped because he never showed he could convert from deep he did he technically shot 42 percent but on one shot a game so that's nothing um good mid-range scorer didn't show the stuff defensively you would have hoped uh of more turnovers than you you would have liked um i don't think hachimura is the guy for the pistons because i think he's really more of a power forward and I don't, I don't think he fits their their bill. But he was a guy that kind of coming in, a lot of people would have been excited about. Uh, we've got P.J. Washington is a guy that I think is going to be maybe kind of sneakily on the draft boards for the Pistons a bit because he's also a power forward, uh, which so you, you're not going to play him at the three next to Blake. But as a bench guy, he's got a lot of value as a guy who shot uh, 42% from three, uh, he, he didn't have a great uh, shot at the line. He only shot 66% at the line, which isn't great. But he was kind of a do-it-all uh, player who could score from the post. He can rebound a little bit. Uh, he makes decent plays within the offense. And he's a, a good weak side defender. He's not a great defensive player. But, um, you know, if you're looking for depth uh, for the bench at uh, kind of power forward and as a big man, P.J. Washington was an option. We've got uh, Brandon Clark's a guy who's going to be all over the draft boards. Uh, elite, oh, elite. That's a guy player. I'm really curious about your thoughts on. That's the other guy from uh, Gonzaga. Yeah, yeah. Who's who had like statistically an insane season, right? Clark is Clark was outrageous. Uh, okay. I mean, you go to like Tankathon and they they give you all these like green numbers that are good. And they, they like put like plus signs next to the numbers and like a one plus sign is like he was a little above average and like three plus signs is he was amazing. Uh, if I if I look at Clark's profile right now, he's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different stats are four plus signs next to him. Uh, you know, it just in terms of like the guy who was the winningest and most impactful player in college this year, uh, that was Zion and Brandon Clark. Those are your two options. Uh, he shot 69% from the field and had a 70% true shooting rating. 
um, he's he's the best defender as a as a forward in college basketball. He was um, a really interesting scorer. He's got a really interesting offensive game as a guard who became a forward, who became a power forward center combo thing. Um, the big thing about Clark is that for all his crazy athleticism, for all his defensive impact, he's six seven without shoes on and has like a six eight and a quarter wingspan. So this isn't Draymond Green. This isn't the undersized guy who's got the crazy wingspan. He's two hundred and five pounds. So he's not the the guy who who can switch up to the five and have this crazy impact. And he's also twenty three. So um, he's you know there's a lot of questions about what the hell is Brandon Clark moving forwards. I'm not sure where he fits on the Pistons. Next to Blake, I don't know if he can be the true rim protector. He's an elite help defender. But I don't know if he's the the rim protector you want next to Blake. Next to Andre, he didn't shoot well from three. He shot 27% from three, didn't take many attempts, didn't take a whole lot of mid-range attempts. He's He's been practicing. That's the big thing he's been trying to show off in draft combine workouts is that he can shoot the three. But can you play him next to Andre right now? No. So when it comes to the Pistons, it's really hard. He's one of those guys where um, I, I kind of looked around the league and said, where does Brandon Clark fit? I came up with the Timberwolves. If you put him next to Carl Anthony Towns, who can do some stuff around the rim, who is going to stretch the floor near him, I think he becomes this amazing, amazing option. But I think there are a lot of teams where he's just going to fall flat on his face and because there's nothing you can do about his size, and I think the Pistons are unfortunately one of them. So so from listening, if, if, he's just, if he was this great college basketball player and he was just this just – like you said, what well, you say, he, him and Zion. If you had to pick two people, him and Zion were like the most outstanding players in college last year. Overwhelmingly. Yeah. Okay, so if if he's that good, is the only knock on him you're saying is the size? Is that the only knock against him? And he can't shoot. The size and the lack of shooting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's one of the things. Like he's actually a pretty good scorer around the rim. He's got some some spin moves and stuff. He's a very athletic player it's just really hard to see where he fits in a lineup because um, he can't really be Are you calling him a traditional rim protector. I mean, the the sad thing is I don't think you can call him a tweener because I don't think you can play him at the five at all. Um, so you're saying he's, so only he's a really just a four. Okay. But he's a four that, you know, you really want somebody else who can stretch the floor at the five, I think, next to him and maybe hopefully defend the rim as a five. Like, uh, um, Indiana would be another team where it'd be like next to Miles Turner, Brandon Clark can just go absolutely batshit insane, and that'd be so fun to watch. So, do you think? I don't think that's. The do you think if he, so with Clark, do you believe that if he got matched up with the right team, this dude could be like insane? I do. Yeah. Like what? Do you, what do you mean by insane? What? What? What's your definition? What do you mean? I I think he's got potential. Uh, if you if you give him a center who's who knows what they're doing behind him, he's got like defense player of the year potential. All right. Okay. But you need a very specific kind of player next to him. How about this as an idea if they draft Brandon Clark, okay? So for now, you play him as your backup power forward when Blake is off the floor. And you just say, screw it. I mean the Pistons had no shooting often on the floor next to Andre plenty. 
So you hope that your wings are, are better shooters than last year and your backup point guard can, you know, shoot even a little bit. You just live with it, and they're a monster defensive pairing. And then as Blake gets older, you play Blake more at the backup center, and then you play him next to Blake there. Do you think that's something that could work potentially with him for the next couple of years, or do you think that that wouldn't work? Maybe. I'll say this. If, if the Pistons were to draft Brandon Clark, I would expect the opening day lineup to be Reggie Jackson, Luke Kennard, Brandon Clark. At the that's why I was going to – yes, that's why I was going to – Blake and Andre. And that would be, just be like you're risking a whole lot having him at the three, but you'd hope that he can make up for it defensively. Okay. But it would be weird, and I don't think that would be using him to the fullest of his potential. Okay, I have another question. Do you believe – so basically from what you've said, at 15, if the Pistons were to say, screw it, we're just going to take best player available, would he be that player? I'm not sure he would be for the Pistons. Okay. I mean, it, it all depends on who's available. I'm not sure he would be for the Pistons. All right. Okay. Is there oh, breaking news. Breaking news right now. Pistons has got Tony Snell. What they what they trade for? Yep, I don't know. Vogue just tweeted the Pistons traded for Tony Snell. Oh, and if I did all this work and they, they really traded the first rounder for Tony Snell. Yeah, I see it too. I just got the notification. What do you guys think? Of, well, on, what do you guys think about this? Well, we'll well we gotta we'll have to give we've got live reactions on the podcast. We'll see what they gave up for him. Um, from what I had been hearing leading up to this, the the Bucks were trying to attach things to get rid of Tony Snell because they really want back. They really want to clear his cap space because they've got to pay people. How much? Remember? Yeah, I don't. I so, don't think that you. I don't think that this would be the first rounder going yeah. out. I um, would even not be shocked if they give up very little. How many years does Tony Snell have left? On I'm looking at right now. Hold on. Um, he got so he got this how many year coming up, and then the year after he got the player option. So and so he's making like ten million a year, right? This year is eleven. Next year will be twelve. He's so taking that player option. Okay, so. Sham was saying that John Luer is going to be gone. I wonder if they trade them Lure and then they're just going to stretch Lure. Who, Milwaukee? Yeah, because they it need to it, save, save money. Because once again, I had heard that they were literally, um, they were like willing to attach a pick or something like that to get rid of Tony Snell. They really were trying to get rid of him. So, and because Sham was telling us, so earlier when we said uh, they better not stretch John Lure. Um, in our group that, chat, Sham was saying that, that he, I, I have the trade. He was, John Lord of the Yes, Bucks. I have the trade. Oh, thirtieth oh, pick too. Yeah, we got the thirtieth. We got the thirtieth and Snow, and they're taking John Lure. Okay, hey, oh, that, and there's so many options at thirty. That's that is a great bro. I think that's that's a if that's trade. it, that's great. That is a great trade. You get another pick in this draft. Get rid of John Lure and Tony Snell's a guy. Okay, hey, are you guys like? We could just keep rolling for a while in this. Like, are you guys cool to just Absolutely. jump them right into this? And then, hell, now we have another pick here. We'll make sure that they're not, like, trading that right away again. But, uh, but, um, so, okay. So, first off, I would just like to say, in John Lure's defense, now that he is officially gone, first off, he did hit a three-pointer, so screw you, Sham. <laughs> Second off... I would just like to remind people when they think of how much they hate John Lure and his contract before he got hurt, he was at least a serviceable player. 
I just want to put that out there. He missed all of the previous. He absolutely season. earned that starting role yeah. he had last he year, was, two years he ago. He missed an entire season. Then last year, he only like was even playing ready, like after the first couple weeks of the season. So he's not in game shape or anything. So I just wanted to put that out there. Um, he was useless for two straight years, but when he was before he got hurt, he was a, like at least competent mid to end rotation player okay i just want to make sure we put that out there okay so tony snell okay oh go ahead hal go ahead and say something well, i was just gonna say so remember how i said that like having stanley johnson was worth like four wins having literally any rotation forward on the pistons last year was worth like eight so you just found like your c minus forward who's gonna be worth a lot of wins just by being a body on the floor Okay, so, yeah, so here's the thing about Tony Snell. Now, some people are going to overreact to him because there's a few numbers. Like, he shot, he's a career 38% three-point shooter, shot 39% last year, 40% the previous two years. So some people are going to think, oh, we've got this really good shooter. He is not that good of a shooter, okay? He doesn't shoot very much. He's an accurate shooter, but he's not a big-time shooter. He's low-volume. Uh, he mostly only takes sort of wide open shots. He takes a while to get his shot off, like not a quick release or anything. So I just want that's Very the first thing. Too. Yeah, that's the first thing that I wanted to make abundantly clear to everybody is if you go to his basketball reference page and you're like, oh my gosh, he's a 40% three-point shooter. This is awesome. Now, it is nice. Like people do generally defend him beyond the line, right? He is a good enough shooter for that, but he really thrives in the corners. He's not like he's not going to shoot a bunch, right? So if you're thinking that they got a guy who's going to be like I don't know, like Wayne Ellington or Reggie Bullock, he's not that. He's a guy who's going to take and hit wide open threes, which is good and is an upgrade from what the Pistons have had. But I just want to make that clear up front. Question, um, question. Yeah, girl, yeah. you're saying that he. I just, I just want to get understanding of this. Like you said, people are going to be going to his basketball reference page. I'm looking at it right now. He shot his career high right now from three would be forty percent in the seven sixteen seventeen season on four and a half attempts. Is that so? What you're saying? What are you saying? So if he's the I'm, dude I'm only takes wide open threes. Well, basically sixteen seventeen was a great year from him. He hasn't really been that same gunner that he was. Yeah. Okay, so basically, okay, so then my question is, why you're saying that? Isn't that like what we need? Because doesn't yeah. Like so it's a time. it's a it's a huge improvement. Okay, so just like Hal said a moment ago, okay, um, getting him is an improvement because once again, I'm cool. We talked about this a ton this season. The Pistons' wing rotation was freaking terrible yep. this past season, right? Tony Snell is at the very least like a competent rotation wing player. All right, I don't know exactly how many minutes he'll play this coming season. He's probably not a guy you really want to be playing like 30 minutes a game, but if he plays in the mid twenties to thirties, it's not a disaster. Okay. But I just want to make it clear. Like he's not some elite shooter. He's a guy that when Blake Griffin passes it to him and he's open, he's going to knock a lot of them down, but he's not going to be like rocketing off of screens and pulling up quick and catching and hitting guy shots with guys in his face or anything like that. That's what I want to say because when you look at his shooting percentage, it's easy to think, oh, wow, he's like an elite shooter. He is not that. That's That was the main thing I'm trying to get across. He's going to hit open shots, which is something the Pistons really need. That's going to be valuable for them, but I just want to make it abundantly clear he is not like an elite shooter. 
So I talked for a bit. So if any of you guys want anything on here, you can uh, okay. go ahead. Otherwise, I can just keep. Going. I mean, hold, actually, I'll go ahead. I'm just reading Rose's trees, tweets right now before I. What else is it? Is he saying anything well, else about it? He said uh, the Pistons will have the 15th, 30th picks. Bucks save four million this year. Uh yeah, nothing about the Pistons. So okay, so they're gonna they're gonna stretch him though. The Bucks are likely. Bro, that totally. is an that is an excellent trade. I think. Love it. Yeah. Excellent. Yes, trade. I, you get off Lewis contract. So they're actually going to, they're not going to gain any, they'll actually take on what, like a million. Cause Lewis contract was like 10 this year. right? Yeah. Yeah. About that. Tony Snell's at 11. So they're going to take on like a million in salary, which, you know, isn't ideal, but whatever, but it's for a guy who's at least well, technically for the, for the record. Technically it's, it's, uh, it's going to be about 4 million along with that. Uh, picks salary. Oh yeah, that's true. No, um, I, th- I think Woj estimated about four million in his tweet. Okay, yeah. So you know, not totally perfect because the Pistons have such little money that that will that might impact their ability to use the full middle their full. Exception. I have a question. So yeah. the, our, the Piston Power group chat, we're all talking. Someone suggest is this? Uh, could you see the Pistons trading up using these picks to trade up or trade for another player? I actually would say it'd probably be more likely that they're going to, that they might. So, okay, Coop, this is the situation that Hal was talking about with potentially trading down. What if the guy that they wanted, they think is going to be there at 30. So they trade John Luer for the 30th pick and now they trade the 15th pick to try and get another. Yes. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Do you think, do you, can you see that happen? Us now trading one of these picks for a ready now player? I 100% can see that. What about happen. you, Hal? I don't know. Well, and here's, Here's what I would really like to see them try is to keep that 15, still pick somebody you like at 15. Maybe you take Langford here because you're you, you know you have a little more leeway to gamble, and then you package the 45 and the 30 to move up, you know, and, and maneuver within around that 30 to find a guy like Dylan Windler, who, you know, you really like in that late first round area. Well, here's another thing that I like about this move. Okay is that, once again, Tony Snell is not, like, he's not that good, but this does give you a little bit more leeway to actually use your draft picks. Because, like, cool, we've talked about this. I put this in the piece I wrote today, is that other than a couple of guys, when you're drafting, you know, when you're outside of the top of the draft, you pretty much have to expect that guys, at the very least for their rookie years, are not going to be ready for much more than, like, a sort of, end to maybe mid-rotation place, right? And that was a bit of a worry because the Pistons really needed a guy who was going to be a rock, who they knew was going to be a rock-solid rotation guy in the wing. And while Tony Snell isn't the perfect situation for that, um, they can get a little bit more brave about using those, actually using those picks on guys who maybe aren't going to be big contributors right away because at the very least, in Tony Snell, you have that veteran who you know is going to at least bring a certain amount of competence if the guy you draft isn't ready for minutes right away. Um, and that's something that I really like about this trade is that now you have that freedom to, if you want to draft, you know, so if you want to draft Romeo Langford, but not have to put him out there playing like 25 minutes a game and instead just play him like 18 off the bench, you can do that now because Tony Snell will at least like fill the minutes on the wing. Well, so, and this is a thing about this particular draft. The Pistons needed a wing. This draft has a lot of interesting 
threes and fours in that range at 15. And so it was kind of obvious that you were going to aim for one of them. You now have that starting three. It used to be you had a position you absolutely had to fill two people in. You need you needed a free agent and you needed a draft pick here. You didn't sacrifice any free agent money and you didn't sacrifice your draft pick. If you wanted to go somewhere else other than small forward or, or shooting guard for this pick now, you can. I don't know who that would be. I don't necessarily know if there's a center, a backup center option, or um, a, there isn't a point guard option there. There's not going to be one. But it does open up just the versatility of your draft options now, too. Yeah. Um, I, just, I just want to repeat this. I just want to repeat this for the podcast. Now, I understand. Okay. I believe uh, Zach Lowe just tweeted the Pistons are going to end up paying, like Hal said, around $14 million because it's a draft pick as well when we uh, sign him. But I just want everyone to understand, the Pistons just got a first – I never in my wildest dreams did I think we would get a first-round pick first round pick for John Luer. So I, that's I, – I'm just – I'm kind of shocked right now about that. Well, the thing that this really says is that um, the Bucks were – are absolutely desperate to shed some salary like desperate desperate um because we and this also says they're gonna resign all their guys they think they're keeping them because you don't do that if you are not confident you're trying to like make sure that you keep all the guys you want to keep uh so in the end it's like i mean that's the reason that they made the george hill trade last year they gave up a pick in that too uh and it's the same basic situation so i would have been surprised to, I look, I am surprised that they got a first round pick, but then again, it's also the 30th pick, right? It is 30. Mm-hmm. So it's a very late first round know. pick. You know, it's not the same thing as if they had gotten the first round pick of, you know, uh, the Timberwolves no, or something any, like that. Any right? pick for John Moore is just insane. But, so it really does highlight just how desperate the Bucks were. But once again, we knew that they were. I mean, right when that, right when it was like John Lure's going to the Bucks for Tony Snell, I said there's a good chance that the Pistons are going to get something in addition to Snell because they were trying to get rid of him. So it really shows that the Bucks were are absolutely desperate to shed salary because they're only going to save, like, they'll save what? I mean, including the pick, I guess they'll probably save, like, $10 million then, right? Because uh, if they stretch the yeah, if, if they stretch him, yeah, it's going to be like nine, something like that. Uh, well, yeah. Rose just retweeted so, someone saying that this would give them enough room to get uh, to bring back Brooke Lopez. Yep, and so that's what it is. So, um, And you know what? In the end, that's probably decent for them because Brooke Lopez was a really important piece for them next year or last yeah, year. It, it, it's an expensive trade to make, but I, I mean, I think Milwaukee absolutely – needed to make something like this happen. So I, I, I like it for both teams. I love it. Yeah, for I absolutely love no. it. It makes a lot of sense for Milwaukee. There is one downside for the Pistons, and that's that um, you no longer have this sort of hypothetical uh, tons of cap space this coming off next offseason. Because as they were set up, John Luer, Langston Galloway, Reggie Jackson, and potentially even Andre Drummond were all coming off the books the same year. Um, Snell is an extra season, so he's going to be, uh, you know, so that's going to be you'll there. You'll still the have Reggie season. and Langston, though, so you'll still yeah, have. Yeah, so there will uh, still be a lot of capital off the books. Yeah, for sure. 
but that is just, if you do want to see a downside to it, that is it, that the Pistons will have um, one extra season of having a contract that's not a very good contract. Um, because even though Tony Snell is a viable rotation piece, he should not be making, he'll be making $12 million that year, yeah. you said, Koo, right? He's like 11 this year and 12 next. So uh, they will have one extra season of having a pretty poor contract on the roster. But I think that's well worth it for this. Um, like I said earlier, I mean, Tony Snell is a viable rotation piece. Uh, there's nothing There's nothing about him that stands out as being particularly good. But he's just fairly competent, I guess is the best way to put it, right? So he's not like some super elite shooter, but if you get him open looks, he'll hit them. Uh, he's not a lockdown defender, but he mostly does his job, and he's got enough length and strength to at least sort of compete with really good scores. Uh, For the record, he's now the second best defender on the team. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's wild so, to say, but yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that's a really, it really gives them flexibility going into the rest of the stuff with the draft and then how they want to use, um, their exceptions because Joe. Uh, you know, he just provides you know. what? <laughs> Never mind. Go ahead. Nope. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save my victory lap for uh, July, around July 7th. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. This is going to be. Yep. If they use this yep. to sign Derek Rose, I'm going to start yep. walking west slowly until I reach Lake Michigan. And then I'm going to get a wing. Got our wing in the plane. Then Stop by my house for coffee first. Until we got I a drown. wing for this, this pick. We, we, okay, here, let me... Jokes aside, okay? Now, this does actually... So this does open up the possibility of using your mid-level exception yep. on a backup point guard, whether that's Derek Rose nope, or Derek somebody Rose. else. But we sh- <laughs> I should make this clear. Tony Snell being a competent fill-in in larger minutes does not mean that that is good to be your primary option. They should still be focusing, having improving their wing, be of. That, no, that's fair. No, I was, I was, I was, I'll say this. Okay. I was a bit trolling. So, no, I know that. You know, I'm so look. I'm just like I'm joking. Trolling aside, um, I wouldn't even hate Derrick Rose as the backup point guard. He wouldn't be my first choice. But I'm cool. We've talked about this. Derrick Rose wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. But Tony Snell is once again, he's competent enough that. If you end up having to play him 30 minutes a night, you don't need to panic. He'll do that and won't be a huge issue. But you, the Pistons still should hope that with their mid-level exception, hopefully they're able – now they'll have less money on the, on the exceptions because before this they had about enough money that they could just barely use the full mid and biannual exceptions. So it'll be interesting to see how they split that up. We'll see if they end up keeping both of their picks. Uh, but well, – he can fill that in, but they should still be hoping that they get someone else well, who's what, better. That from what be we've all talked about, and when I, when I say we all, our little group, me, you, Sham, Martin, and Hal's here, so we can talk about it here now. But from what we've talked about, and I've pretty much come away with, I didn't know how likely it was going to be the Pistons were going to get someone of any kind of importance with their money in free agency at the wing position. And so – I, I know Sham suggested his idea was maybe trade the 15th pick for a ready now wing. I'll say this. Now that we got Tony Snell, that's a competent wing. How I think said earlier, he's probably going to start at the three. 
So Pistons, Pistons get Tony Snell at the three. We got two. We got extra pick now. We could use a pick on the wing. We could use another pick on a wing here. Have him be a backup. Third, if we keep the thirtieth, we could possibly use that one on another wing. We could just get two wings right off the bat and then use the money to get back a point guard there. Yeah. So I look. This is I, I see the Pistons spending all. Oh, Hal's got Hal's got his hand raised. Hal's got his hand oh, raised. Oh, go ahead. Also, I, I think there's a, an extra couple of consequences here um, in that so you don't have as much money in free agency, but now you can dedicate it to point guard. I think you can safely aim at point guard and then worry about backup center as a um, as a, a, uh, a minimum guy or – you still have the biannual, right? So you can still lever the leverage the biannual at your your center. This opens up someone like Goga Badatze. I think I'm saying that name right. I hope so. Um, in the draft, who's a, an interesting center, and he's maybe an interesting guy at 15 and st- stuff like that. Um, the one thing I want to say I'm seeing on Twitter already is people saying, "Well, you package the the 30 and the the 45 and the 15, you move up to seven or something." I, I would heavily disagree with that uh, just right off the bat because I don't think there's a difference in talent from five, six, seven, you know, much deeper into the draft. So I think holding on to 15 and using it and, and keeping multiple picks around is a big deal. I think with Snell you have somebody I think he, he's going to play a lot of minutes because he's an ideal guy to sit in the opposite corner from Blake Griffin you know Blake does his little post up thing and they swing the ball Tony Snell's going to be the guy who's open all the time yeah almost every play he's going to be open he's going to convert those looks that's ideal uh, that opens up a lot I think he can play a little bit of the four Not a, you don't want to play him a lot of minutes but if he needs to play the four next to Andre Drummond and some bench units he can do it, and that lets you maybe get away with Luke Kennard at the three and, and stuff like that. I, I think he's this is a really versatile thing that's going to open up a lot of options for them moving forwards because he's going to be the guy we all hoped Glenn Robinson was. Yeah, that's really what it comes down to is that, yeah, that's a great way to put it, is that he could be the guy that we they hoped Glenn Robinson would be. And, you know, it's not ideal to be paying the guy you hoped Glenn Robinson would be $12 million dollars, but at the very least, he's a viable rotation guy. Um, There's one other thing I was going to say. Oh, just to tack on what you were saying about that now you can pretty much just use your vet minimum slash maybe a draft pick on a center is that, and I've said this before, but um, if the Pistons are going to rely on a vet minimum slash rookie to be at a spot in the rotation. I think we can all agree that we'd most like that to be the backup center spot. Um, Andre's got to be the guy on this roster that you've got the most confidence in to stay healthy and be able to play big minutes consistently if he has to. We've proven also, it can't be point guard. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. We have a lot of evidence it cannot be point guard. And then also on top of that is the fact that just in today's NBA, you know, if you can find a center who can at least jump high, catch lobs and block some shots, um, they can survive with a bench unit if you have some good ball handlers next to them. So, yeah, I would agree with you very much so there that um, if there's one spot that you want to 
that the and with this trade, the Pistons will almost certainly have to do this now, either one of their draft picks or use a vet minimum guy for that backup center spot. Um, and I, I can live with that. It'll be a little bit frustrating to be looking at yet another season where Andre Drummond is going to have a terrible backup where you kind of cringe every time he comes off the way. floor. But um, if that's the if you've got if you're going to have that happen at one position, center is where I would rather nope, have it happen. Uh, well, it, Kuwait's probably no, going to hopefully they find a guy who can play. Um, maybe they get a draft pick who's actually competent enough to give them that 50 minutes a night. Maybe they find a guy off the vet minimum pile that ends up being fairly competent. Um, Lord knows it certainly happens, but if you well, get, so, if you're, yeah, go ahead, Al. Well, so I was just going to say, so the the interesting thing about the 30th pick is that's where a lot of the uh, the other centers kind of cluster in a lot of the mocks is right around that 30th. So that's where if they're doing their research and they're figuring out who they want there, you know, they can use that 45 and that 30 to maneuver in that range and get that guy if they think there's a center in the draft. And we can talk about a couple of those guys later if you want. Okay. Um, yeah, we can talk about those right now. There's one last thing I want to say about this trade, though, is that um, look, they haven't been a 100% hit rate with this new front office. Um, how tomorrow goes and a few other things, we'll say a lot about it. Uh, obviously, the Glenn Robinson deal was a not a huge swing, but a total miss. Um, signing Jose Calderon was a total <laughs> waste. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. But that is a really impressive trade because you know that when the Bucks first called, they were trying to not give up that pick and almost all certainly to you, right? And the it would have been very easy for the Pistons to just say, oh, you know, we're getting a viable rotation piece at a position we desperately need for John Luer, who hasn't hardly played the last two years. Perfect. We'll take that, right? Would have been very easy for them to do that. And so you have to give them a lot of credit for sort of, I guess you could say sort of staying on it to get that first round pick because they clearly had kept their ear to the ground. They knew that the bucks were desperate to get as much money cleared as they could. They knew that the bucks probably wouldn't be that hard to convince them to take that first round pick in a, or to add that first round pick in. Um, so just, I just wanted to say that that's a, that is a win for this front office, a big one, I think. Um, getting the first round pick in addition, just because it would have been very, very easy Huge. for them to just do a, um, well, I mean, you know, it's the 30th pick in a supposedly weakish draft. So maybe it doesn't end up being huge. Maybe it does, but just, that's just another thing when you're trying to decide, okay, because they've only been at it one year when you're trying to decide, do I have faith in this front office long-term? That's another thing to put in the cap of that's a good sign for the front office long-term is that those are the sorts of things where once again, it would have been very easy. People would have still been pretty happy trading John Luer for Tony Snell straight up, right? It would have been very easy to do that. But they clearly, they did their research, they had their ear to the ground, and they pushed for it, and they got it. And that's a really impressive add-on to it. So um, you said, Hal, that unless, Koo, do you have anything else you want to talk about there, or can we talk about a couple of these? these so things? you're moving away from the trade? Hmm? I mean, we can come back to it, but just do you have anything else you want to tack Basically, on there? Basically, all I have to say just, is, for anybody, because there is a couple, the majority, as it should be, are celebrating this trade. But there has been one or two people in my mentions talking about how we took on an extra year. Listen, this is the ba- this is the big thing about this. And this, I don't know if Joe and Hal will agree with me, but this was my big, 
biggest gripe with having Lure on the team. It's bad enough that you're on a bad if you're on a bad contract, but if you're on a bad contract and you simply can't play, that's when it becomes the biggest issue. Tony Snow can play. He may be overpaid, but he's going to be able to play and contribute for us. So you're getting rid of someone who literally was a cap casualty and just couldn't play. So he wasn't bringing you nothing on him. He was just there getting paid. He was pretty much Josh Smith, just getting paid for no reason. And you got in return for him, for someone who wasn't even playing, you got some, a rotational piece at a position that you are likely, like me and Joe have talked about, the worst in the league last year of anybody trying to win. And you also got a first-round pick. That's an absolute – I think it's an absolute win. I think we it's, it should be celebrated. It's insane. I never thought that the piss – I thought we'd have to attach something to get rid of John Lure. That's why I thought would end up having to happen. So this is insane for me. Well, I mean, okay, here, you know what? Joe is not so stupid, Coop. Remember oh, no. all earlier this season, right? Several times when we brought up these dudes, I said, you know, come this offseason, John Lure isn't expiring, Langston Galloway isn't expiring, Reggie Jackson's an expiring. If the Pistons want to get out from under those contracts, they'll probably be able to, and you'll be surprised by how easy that will be. They just got out of John Lure's contract, and they got a first-round pick and a semi-useful rotation player back for him. So I just wanted to point that out, that uh, – <coughs> I told Joe also guys. told us Jose Collin would be fine. You know what? I <laughs> thought he would be. I'll take that out right I'll now. raise my hand. I, I was also guilty of being on the... Well, like, you know what, man? The, the Jose Calderon didn't have a train. He had like a wagon. Yeah. I was on the wagon. <laughs> Who could have expected literally one of the better shooters in the history of the game to just not shoot at all? He couldn't shoot. He Didn't he shoot like, what, 29% from three? I, I mean, honestly, like, we should have expected it. Yeah, so, yeah, I given the Pistons' history with crappy old point guards, we should have expected it. You're right about that. Um, okay, so, Hal, you said there were a couple of centers that might be in the 30 range you want to talk about. Go ahead and give us a quick so overview. So, the, there's two guys I want to touch on first because this trade opened up a, a couple of unique uh, gamble opportunities. The first is Chuma Okiki. Uh, kind of a forward out of Auburn. He's the guy, he got hurt in the middle of the tournament. You probably saw Charles Barkley get broken up about it and Auburn coach Bruce, Bruce Pearl uh, crying on the sidelines because this guy had an ACL injury. He's probably not going to play this year because he got hurt in March. If you're looking for a really talented forward, Okiki's a guy who shot a lot of threes. He's very athletic. And if you if you now have Snell and you're like, okay, I don't need the immediate contributor there at, at small forward, He's a guy where you can gamble and maybe get the small forward of the future. Uh, and then the other guy is, is Darius Baisley. He's the guy um, who he sat out this year. And we're kind of, nobody really knows how good he is, but he's 6'9 with a 7-foot wingspan. He's super athletic, handles the ball, shoots the ball, defends a little bit. He's got a lot to prove, but if you're making a gamble, especially if you're like getting into the 30 range, Basley makes a lot of sense to gamble at a position in need because he can play the three, you can play the four. Um, so those are two names where it'd be like, you know, neither one of them is going to be a contributor at either at any level this year. But Snell opens up just a tiny window for you to try and take that kind of gamble. Um, but moving on to, to the centers, because those are kind of the interesting things. So there's a couple of names I really like in that second round range. The, the first name that we have to at least mention is um oh come on i just i just had his name it's right 
It's right there, Gogibadatse. That's I mentioned him earlier. He's a, a center out of the country, Georgia. Uh, 6'11", 250, 7'2 uh, wingspan, traditional center. If you wanted to go for a center with the 15 and he was there, he'd make a little bit of sense. He's not the crazy agile athlete, but he's a really stable, composed pick-and-roll defender. And then he's got the makings of a three-point shot. It's not there yet, but he's got some touch. He draws a lot of free throws. He blocks a lot of shots. Um, if you're looking for the guy who maybe steps up into Andre's shoes because you want to move Andre or Andre leaves, uh, obviously that's not how I feel about Andre. But if you're looking for the guy who fills that role, uh, Goga's the, the option to take at 15. Um, as far as the second round goes, uh, you might hear some whispers of Jonte Porter. I'm just going to say I'm super uncomfortable with Porter. Uh, he's extremely talented. Uh, I've, I've called him the bench Jokic in the past. But the problem is he tore the same ACL twice. And his brother, Michael Porter Jr., had the back injury that now he's got nerve in injuries in his foot. And uh, I believe... Uh, don't quote me on this because I'm trying to remember an article I read ages ago, but Porter's got two sisters, one of whom had to retire from basketball for medical reasons relating to knees, and I think the other one had like five ACL injuries. So he's one of those guys, I love Porter's game. The family injury history is outrageous, and I don't think you can touch him with a 10-foot pole because of it. Um, as far as a couple names that are really interesting, one of my favorites in the draft is Sagava Kanate out of West Virginia. Uh, he's undersized. He's like 6'7 with a 7-foot wingspan. Uh, for a 5, obviously, that's a little limited. 250 pounds, so extremely strong. This is a guy who, who you know, he looks absolutely incredible um, when it comes to just sheer muscle mass. One of the absolute best shot blockers in college basketball. Um, very experienced defender. The interesting thing about him is he stepped out and he shot 39% from three this year, and he shoots 81% at the line. So this is a guy with shooting touch, and he shot three a game, which isn't amazing. That's not a crazy volume, but for a center, that's pretty good. Uh, his, his field goal percentage and true shooting percentage were really low, mostly because he had to do a lot of like post-up stuff, which he's not good at. If you just told me Sagwa Kanate was on the team and he came in next to Blake... He came in maybe next to Thon. I don't know about next to Thon, but he could come in, walk in, and and be a rim protector, be an impact defender who could also run pick and pops and stand in the corner maybe, kind of like a, a Dwayne Dedman type of archetype. Uh, I think he can fill that. I, I really like Sagaba Kanate. Um, then you have, I'm going to murder this name, and I'm sorry, Mifiandu Kabengele. Uh, he's kind of skyrocketed up draft boards, and then he's fallen, and then he skyrockets, and then he falls. Um, partly because he's a little raw, uh, in my opinion. But he's 6'10", 7'3", wingspan, so great size for a center, 250-some pounds. Um, he's a guy who he, uh, he can shoot the three a little bit, uh, 37%, two attempts a game. That's not bad. 76% at the line, so he's got some touch. Uh, he's another one of those guys who just looks like he might be in that um, Serge Ibaka, Miles Turner um, archetype where he can defend the rim and hit threes. And I want to see more of him as a defender. And uh, 
you know, I, 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 he still has some stuff to prove to me in that regard. But uh, if you're using your second round pick or your 30th pick on this guy who can shoot threes and defend the rim and block shots, that's a that's a big deal. The other really interesting one that's a completely different archetype is Ethan Happ. Um, you guys might remember a little bit of him because uh, he was at Wisconsin for so many years. Ethan Happ is is like if Zaza Pachulia didn't suck, <laughs> and I think that's the best way. Like he's a great passer, a great screener, uh, a really smart intuitive defender he's not a crazy athlete but he's still young and he still has the foot speed to keep up with guys and so if you're looking for a guy who can kind of run some of the Blake Griffin post offense and who can run um who he can drive and create and he's a great passer uh he can defend maybe not ones but like he was defending two through five in college Maybe that's three through five in the NBA. Maybe that's just threes and fours in the NBA. I'm not sure. Um, we'll have to see how well, because he's not super long. He's not crazy bulky. Um, but he's just a guy. He's got such incredible skill, and he's he managed to be incredibly impactful as a defender without being a crazy athlete. I really love Ethan Happ, and I think he could step in with a big role on the Pistons. So those are, those are the big names I came up with. Okay. Um so I have a confession to make about this. Uh, we do not have the like paid for version of the service we use to record these. So we are going to have to wrap this up before too long, not right away, but we can't just go for like another hour because we're limited on the amount of time we can use here. Um, so I guess uh, we can close out with just like um, Ku and then Hal, just like, any last sort of final wider thoughts on this trade that just happened? You want me to go for it? Yeah, sure. Go for it. I mean, like I said earlier, this is uh, I'm very excited for this trade. I'm very happy with it. I think it opens up so many more. That's what people, the people, okay. <laughs> I'm saying a name. I can't take it, Joe. I can't keep saying to people. Oh yeah. I you can't. know who, uh, let's, let's play one guesses as to who thinks this trade was. Okay, a go ahead. Idea. Take a guess. Hey, Hal, Hal, have you have you been looking at Twitter right now? At Twitter? Uh, yeah. No. No. Okay. no. Mate, let's Surprise play one me. guesses as to who in Pistons Twitter thought this was a bad a bad trade and made a snarky comment about it. Steve Correct. Henson. I, I'm shocked. So, <laughs> I should have known. I'm shocked the guy who David. thought Ed Davis is objectively better than Andre Drummond would be the one who thinks this is a bad so, trade. Oh my God. Anyways, now that we've said the name, he's he pretty much made a he's pretty much saying this was stupid. I don't I'm I'm not gonna I I gotta be honest, I don't respect his opinion too much for me to just quote him just all the way through. So I'm not gonna I, I'm not gonna do that. All I'm gonna say is this this trade, I really like this trade. Not only do we get literally for someone who literally was unplayable on a big contract, we got Someone who is playable at a, at our like most our our worst like position, our biggest need. We got someone for that, and a pick. Now whether you whether you complain that it's the thirtieth, oh one pick away from the second, a pick is a pick, and the Pistons not have three of them, which opens up all kinds of things to do. And that's maybe maybe he not. Let me stop singling at him. Anybody who agree thinks the same way as him. Maybe you don't understand that this can open up so many other things for the Pistons to do now. They have like different 
different options to go with. They can package picks. They can trade for someone. They can they can set, uh, attack needs in the draft and go all out for one. Like this, this attacks so many other things just by getting rid of someone who literally was unplayable. This is what you did. And and before how it goes, if we if me and Joe open up this podcast, our very first podcast together, if I open this podcast up with, hey Joe, the Pistons are going to get a pick for uh, John Luer, who is who won't play for the Pistons at all this year. He must be unplayable. We're going to get a pick and a rotational wing player. Everyone in Pistons Twitter probably would have disowned me. I would have been laughed at. I probably wouldn't be so uh, co side expert of Piston Power. So that's all I'm going to say. Go ahead, Hal. Oh, I just, I, you, you kind of hit what I wanted to say there. It opens up a lot of options. As the guy who's been spending hours looking at draft stuff, you know, not having to necessarily zone in on the small forward position immediately is huge. Having an extra option in the the thirty range to get the the exact role player you want is huge. Uh, being able to to kind of have a little more flexibility in free agency is a big deal and I'm just uh, this, this was exciting because they've been kind of pigeonholed into a very specific set of things they absolutely had to do this offseason and they've got a lot more flexibility now um, they've got some cap stuff to juggle through but I'm, I'm excited to see what, what uh, they're looking at because Stefanski's got a lot of options ahead of him now and he's been I don't want to say amazing, but he's been pretty smart about what he's done so far. So, yeah, that's all I want to say. Um, it is worth mentioning that there is a scenario where this ends up being a stupid trade. Yeah, here we go. I can see the logic. Um, no, it's not just a see the logic. It's a this is the truth. Okay. So 30th pick, there's a very real chance that ends up not being someone who's worthwhile. Um, and there is a scenario where John Luer actually gets a full healthy offseason. He comes back next season, and he's actually a capable rotation player. And while I'd still rather have my overpaid rotation player be a wing on this team, the Pistons could use a capable rotation player at big, too. Um, so if they whiff on the pick they got, slash don't turn it into something useful or whatever, and Luer comes back this coming season and is like, a playable guy who can play 20 minutes of a game and be effective. And Tony Snell is just kind of meh. Um, you know, that, that could end up looking bad. Uh, and one thing that I do want to reiterate, Tony Snell is not very good. He's competent. I think there's some people on Twitter who seem to think that he's like really good. He's not that good. There's a reason that the Bucks wanted to get rid of him, but I, I, I'm all for this trade. I think it's a really good trade, but there is a scenario where it ends up not being a great trade for the Pistons. But for now, I'd say it's really, really good um, in the universe where every pick that you make is going to be a hit, you know, <laughs> right now I'm, I'm pretty stoked about it. Uh, so do either of you guys have any closing thoughts? Cause this podcast, even aside from our time limit, this podcast is about to clock in at two hours and 20 minutes. So I just, say, I'm, I just tried to start my own podcast. Like, yesterday and we somehow managed to go longer than that one did and i'm happy about that doesn't make me feel as guilty so great stuff us okay what about you ku anything you want to close with Derek Rose to the pistons oh my goodness 
<laughs> okay. Um, I think because Ku knows what happens when we start talking about Derek Rose on this podcast, and it doesn't go well for Ku. Uh, so we're gonna. That's why I waited till Joe that we had to leave. I'd say. Uh, so um, I guess when this comes out, it'll be the day of. But so on this Thursday uh, night, we're gonna be. I'm gonna be over in Detroit. Uh, Ku's gonna be there. Shams gonna be there. A few other people from Pistons Twitter and such are gonna be there. Uh, Jordan, who's Pistons thoughts on Twitter, is gonna be there. Uh, we're gonna meet at Joe D's in Utica, Correct. right, Ku? the field house we're gonna play basketball there at like fours when we're meeting then after that we're gonna go to uh buffalo wild wings right by there and we're gonna watch the draft there so if anyone is listening to this and you have any interest in doing that you should totally do that um that's gonna be a disaster i'm sure and yeah i think that's it um and so that does mean that even though you know we've got the new setup and whatnot so we'll hopefully be recording more often there will not be one tomorrow um, we'll probably do a more. We'll probably do it on on either Friday or Saturday, I'd say, because we'll have all the draft reactions. Definitely should do one on Friday. Um, so if it's up to me, everybody listening, I'll force Joe to do one Friday. Okay. Uh, all right. So I think that's it. Um, thanks very much for coming on, Hal. Because once again, we would have very poor uh, draft prep, and you know the potential fear of that the Pistons were going to trade their pick actually turned into they traded for an extra pick. So, yeah. Hey, it's thanks for having me. Yeah, I was always the first first pick or first uh, guest on the unnamed podcast. I was the first guest when it became hashtag basketball. Glad to finally make the third appearance and yeah, uh, you know sure. break how, that curse. How we? I'd love time. to have you back on here. Thank you, thank yeah. you both. Yeah. You're a beautiful person, Hal, and so are all of you listeners. You're all beautiful. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Have a blessed night. Go Pistons.